Wendell's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right, play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Hello. How are you doing, man? What's happening? What's going on? Que pasa? Bonjour. All those good things. I hope everybody is doing well. I hope everybody is being safe. I hope everybody is doing what they need to do to get better. Phase one of our society is being implemented right now, so we'll see what happens. So there's, there's the shackles have been unleashed just a little bit. So I guess as people now start to to recoup some of the liberties and freedoms that they had before this epidemic put everybody on total lockdown. I hope everybody is still being smart, responsible, and using common sense. So yeah, man, it's good times, good times are abound, good times hopefully are coming to you, each and every one of you. So What's going on, man? What's happening? Before I begin the podcast, I just want to say thank you, man. I've, I've been really getting some good vibes. I've been really getting some good some good uh, stuff, feelings going on. You know, my podcast is starting to grow, starting to grow. It's a small deal, man. It's a small movement. I'm not looking to go from, uh, you know, I'm not looking to go from obscure to, you know, superstardom overnight. I'm not even looking to be going to superstardom. I'm just, I'm just looking for something to where I can do, where I can help out others, where I can entertain others, and slowly but surely, through hard work and through the um, and through the uh, dedication of you guys, I appreciate the fact that this podcast, Wendell's World of Sports, is slowly starting to grow. So you got guys like, I want to say special dedication and thank you to guys like, you know, Jay Fleming and Corey Harrison and TT and DeAndre Cherry and Armando and Hootner and Wax and all you guys, man, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. For those who I didn't mention, please forgive me, but I say thank you to those also coming off the cuff right now in terms of, you know, I'm excited. I'm excited to go ahead and do this stuff, man. I'm excited to put in the work. I'm excited to put in the time to go ahead and to put together something to hopefully that you guys can enjoy. And I just trying, I'm just trying to do something in terms of this podcast, each and every single one to get better and to get better and to get better, to become more entertaining, to become more insightful, not going to raise my passion level any higher because I think it's already at a hundred. Can't raise that anymore. And my love for what I'm doing, I can't raise that anymore because I absolutely love it. So the challenge for me to present to you and present to my listeners and present to those who have been dedicated and, to, and who subscribe to my podcast is to try to be better each and every time to give you guys a reason to continue to subscribe, to give you a reason to go ahead and to listen, to give you a reason to have me as one of the people that you want to be entertained when you're working or when you're driving in your car or when you're home or whatever, man, whenever you're listening to this podcast. So, you know, guys like Corey and Jay and DeAndre and Hoot and Armando, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, TT, thank you very much, Kiki, thank you very much. So 
The subscribes are very much welcome. The rates and review are much appreciated. So, yeah, man, let me see what I can do to, again, hold myself up to your standards, which is to entertain by putting on a podcast which you want to listen to. Whether the emotions that I bring out of you is positive, negative, whether you laugh, whether you scold, whether you're calling me names while you're listening to this podcast, while you're shaking your head, man. The deal for me is to give you something for you guys to listen to, for you guys to think about, for you guys basically to be entertained. And even if it's a situation where I bring out a thought or a comment or an opinion that you might not agree with, my goal is to say at least I can have my listener take a look at it in a different direction, take a look at it from a different angle to judge and to assess whether what I'm talking about is A-OK. But, you know, I don't speak out of my ass, I don't speak out of turn, I don't speak out of, you know, bullshit, so... All the stuff that I do in terms of bringing you a podcast, man, that's what it's all about. It's all about, you know, enlightening. It's all about making you guys think a little bit. It's all about, you know, seeing what I can do to entertain. And hopefully I can be entertaining, man. At least at least give me the props to say my music is good. It's like, look, you might, you might think that I'm full of shit. You might think that, you know, in terms of my basketball or my UFC or my boxing, I'm a, I'm a fight fan, baby. Hashtag real fight fan. Whether it's NFL, whatever I'm bringing down, man, y'all might think that I'm full of shit. The one thing, hopefully, that you can say about my podcast, one of those worlds of sports is, hey, the guy does play good music. <laughs> I mean, you know, the the, the bumper music is, is pretty good. I'll get I'll give the man credit for that. The rest of the show might suck, and he might not know what the fuck he's talking about, but damn, the music is good. I'll give, I'll give him credit for that. One of those worlds of sports, I'm yours, the wall is so glad that you could be with us. So today... On the podcast, man, I am going to be talking about what happened on Saturday night, the return for one night of live sports after an eight-week hiatus, UFC 249. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Justin Gaethje. Thank you very much, Tony Ferguson. Thank you very much, Francis Ngannou. Thank you very much to all of those who put together. And yes, while I have been very critical of the man, thank you very much, Dana White for giving me an evening to where it was fantastic. I actually bought the pay-per-view. Yes, hold on. Yes, unbelievable. Yes, that is not a joke. That is not a myth. That is not a lie. That is not a rumor. I actually spent the $64.95 to buy the pay-per-view to watch at my home because um, I was yearning, man. I was I was fiending for some sports. I was fiending for some live sports. So it really changed my thoughts and opinions now about other sports moving forward. Before if you heard me on my podcast, I was always about, hey, you know what? If the NBA doesn't need to come back or the NHL, well, who cares about the NHL? The NBA really doesn't need to come back. And if Major League Baseball and college sports and football and everything, they need to be suspended or if they need to be canceled or postponed. Hey, I'm down with that because I want everything to be copacetic and I want everything to be perfect and correct when these leagues start up again. So if that means the NBA has to take the rest of the season off because, you know, watching a basketball game, watching LeBron James play in front of zero people in an empty stadium. I don't think that I would enjoy the experience that much. So, you know, that's going to be the situation. Have the league start up again next season or when everything is, is good, when there's a vaccine or whatever. You know, I'm completely done in 180. Now it's like, you know what, hey, despite the fact of the hoops and the, and the obstacles and the mountains that they need to climb to resume a league or to start a league or to start a league at a particular time, go ahead and do it. And if that means having a, an arena or in a stadium filled with nobody in there, like they do in with the Korean Baseball League over on ESPN, which I've caught a couple of innings of during the night, 
then so be it, man. Do it. Because really, watching USC 249 really whet my appetite to want to see more live sporting events. I can only talk about the last day for so many for so many podcasts, and that's going to be coming to an end soon. So I want to give a thank you, a big shout out to those who put together that fabulous card, UFC 249, from the Star Veterans Memorial Arena in Jacksonville, Florida. Thank you very much. With the first UFC card of any kind, without any fans in the arena or venue, there were 11 fights, five stoppages, two title bouts. One fight was canceled. It was a Jacare Souza versus Uriah Hall. Souza and two corner men tested positive for the coronavirus. Now, the story was that Souza arrived in Florida on Wednesday. He told UFC officials that a family member might have tested positive, even though he was not showing any symptoms. I guess Jacare was asymptomatic. So Souza was then tested and reportedly isolated. He thought that he, he, he weighed in. He appeared in the pictures with UFC President Dana White on Friday before his positive test came back. So Souza was wearing gloves and a mask during his weigh-in and face-off with, with Hall. Interesting. It was all interesting, but there was no way because when the, when the uh, report came out that Souza had tested positive, it was like, well, I mean, is the car going to be canceled? What's going to be going on? What's the next step? There was no way. No way that Dana White or anybody was going to have that card canceled after the report, after the fighter tested positive, after uh, Jacare post, uh, reported a uh, positive test for the virus. No way. I mean, they had already come too far. They had already moved the date once before. Everybody was ready. Everybody was down there. No, 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 no. And really, what you can say with this situation is because, well, the next question is going to be, well, was it worth it? You know, the put the fighters at risk and, and everything else. I mean, we don't know exactly with Jacare that he got down there on Wednesday, but we don't know in between the time that he got down there and he told the officials that, you know, someone in his family had been, uh, he had, had been positive with the virus and then he took the test and then he came back, he was positive. In between all those two things, we don't know exactly who he came in contact with. We don't know what reporters he came in contact with. We don't know what arena workers that he came in contact with. We don't know what UFC officials or fighters that he came in contact with. So, I mean, it was a situation, well, I mean, we have someone in the in the area around these folks, around these fighters, around these people who could then go around and be around other fighters. Is this a situation where this card needs to go on? And it was like, yes, this card needs to go on. Now, after everything is all said and done and the fighters and the and the employees and everything gets tested, if there's a certain percentage of people who come back positive, well, then we'll have to have another discussion about this. But in a situation like this, when it comes to this sport in particular, and maybe you're talking about, you know, combat sports, golf, tennis, sports of those natures, nature, this is going to be the new normal for a while until they come up with a vaccine. And that vaccine circulates into regular society. This is the way it's going to be. And then you also have to recognize, I was having a discussion with this with somebody the other day. And I was talking and I was saying, you know what? Yeah, they're talking about having a vaccine and it could be 12 to 18 months. And Dr. Fauci and those who were talking about coming up with a vaccine and, and the timetable for a vaccine, when he said 12 to 18 months, he said that in February. So we're thinking anywhere between February of 2021 and you know, maybe the summer of 2021 that a vaccine will be will be finally available. But it was like, you know what? You also have to consider this. Yeah, there might be a vaccine, but that is not a situation where, 
I'm just going to throw out a uh, arbitrary date. You know, if, if they come up with a vaccine, say January 1st, you know, when all oh, the scientists have finally come up with something and they've tested it and they've this, that, and the other, and it killed the coronavirus, or now, you know, it's the same thing as the flu. It's been this, this uh, antidote or this vaccine for the COVID-19 virus will, will, you know, devalue or will put this at the level of the flu once it becomes, once you get a shot and everything is going to be great and we can start returning to normal. If that vaccine is found on January 1st, it's not like we're all going to go back to the way it was before on January 2nd. I'm quite sure with the CBC and some others, there's still some avenues and there's still some hoops that they've got to, they have to perform before it gets out to the public. And then once it gets out to the public, everybody or most people, or there has to be a way for folks to get the vaccine in them. And then you're going to have to come up with the argument for those who don't believe in the vaccine or who don't believe in vaccination. So it's going to be like, nah, man, I don't care. You think I'm going to trust the government put, you know, with some drug or something like that or some vaccine? No, I don't, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to put my trust in that. So we're going to have to deal with that, with that situation. And so it's a situation with the UFC in 249 to where for the near future, what we saw that's going to be the new norm. It's going to be quite shocking. It's going to be quite a, a, a it's going to be quite an adjustment when we finally do. Whether it's the fall of next season or the fall of next year or the summer of next year, whenever, whenever the normal returns. And when I say normal, before this pandemic happened, before for me March 11th, in terms of when my life turned upside down with this pandemic, life returning before those dates. It's going to be kind of uh, it's going to be kind of shocking. It's going to be kind of uh, you know awkward to get right back to it. But as for right now, seeing sports being played in front of nobody, that's going to be the new norm. It's going to be the new norm for a while. Whether we're talking about SEC football, whether we're talking about you know college basketball in the ACC or at the Capital One Arena with Georgetown University or Lexington, Kentucky and Rupp Arena with the University of Kentucky when they play, whether we're talking about the NCAA tournament possibly, the basketball tournament, what does that mean for the um, college football playoffs moving forward and the bowl games moving forward? Are we even going to have bowl games without fans for college football or a situation like that? What about the NFL? What about all of these things. I think we got just a quick glimpse into what it's going to be like on a very, very small stage because when you're speaking about, you know, football or you're speaking about basketball and, you know, playing in front of arenas and stadiums a little bit different, the amount of people that are being played, just the whole sport itself is a little bit different than, say, what the UFC put on on Saturday. But it's like, for me, it was like, all right, Let's go ahead and get ourselves kind of used to this. Let's go ahead and see what we can do to, you know, get comfortable with this because these type of things are going to be happening from now on. So with the coronavirus, Jacare Sousa coming down with this, there was no way that the UFC was going to postpone or cancel this card. And they shouldn't because now things need to be taken into place in terms of, okay, because the world's going to open up, yo. We're going to get back to we're going to get back to work sooner rather than le- than later, you know. We're, we're going to go back into the office spaces. We're going to go back to the classrooms. We're going to go back on college campuses eventually. Not talking about tomorrow. Not talking about in June or July, but in the very near future, 
people are going to be expected to go back to work, back into the classroom and such. So how are we going to handle this? Hopefully that the testing for the coronavirus will improve, but without a vaccine, how exactly are we going to handle this? Because testing can only go so far in terms of who's positive and who's negative for the, for the virus. So how are we going to do this? And I think we got a glimpse, and I think that we got an example of how this is going to be happening. The Uriah Hall, Jacare Sousa fight was canceled because of the fighter coming down with the virus, even though he was asymptomatic. So I'm quite sure he's going to be quarantined for 14 days. And then the rest of the folks, they just move on. And they'll have the testing and they'll have everything else to make sure that the fighters who were fighting didn't have the virus when they stepped inside the octagon. So it's, again, the, the difference between what happened with UFC 249 and with other sports leagues was the pot of, you know, with the possibility of stopping or suspending play was, again, the amount of people that the athletes that were, they were surrounded by. Like the NBA shut down the, that night between the Utah Jazz. Remember when the Utah Jazz, I forgot who they were playing at that time, but Rudy Gobert had come down, tested positive for the virus, and then later on we learned that Donovan Mitchell was the other Utah Jazz player who tested positive. And it was like, so it was a situation where we had to shut everything down at the time. Absolutely. Because it was a situation where, you know, the amount of people that Gobert and Mitchell were in contact with, you're speaking about other Jazz players and employees, reporters, players from the other team, and then they had to go ahead and get, and they had to go ahead and get tested. And the employees, the Jazz employees, the reporters and the arena workers, they all had to go ahead and get uh, tested because of the amount of people that really Gobert playing for uh, a franchise in the NBA, the amount of people that he would be around. With Jacare Sosa, Sousa coming in, it was a situation where, again, he was maybe around one of his family members, his coaches, his training partners. So the amount of people that couldn't come in contact, that could have come in contact with him was a lot different than the amount of people that Gobert and Donovan Mitchell came in contact with. So it was a situation that we've learned more about the virus since then. So that's just the way it's going to be here on Wendell's World of Sports the Podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. This is the new normal for all society for the near future and beyond. Again, at least until science has put on some type of vaccine and bringing in a regular rotation. If the, the world reopens, especially without a vaccine, the risk of, risk of infection is going to be there. And I think that we're going to have to go back into our society, go back into our communities, go back to the regular world, knowing that, going back into the workplace, knowing that, that unfortunately, somebody is going to be coming down with the coronavirus. People are going to be coming down with the coronavirus. The situation is going to be, or the, the new plot to the story is going to be, okay, how do we go ahead and we take care of this? What do we have implemented in terms of, protocol and everything that we have in place to where someone who comes into a workplace, who comes into a classroom, who comes into a barbershop, who comes into office spaces of federal buildings and airport terminals and planes and trains and buses and everything, college campuses. What are we going to do about that? Because eventually we're going to have to come back to normal society and we can't wait another 18 months or 12 months to do that. So what things are we going to put in place? And I think in this situation, the UFC was kind of giving us a roadmap on, on how to do that. And it sucks. It really does sucks. I mean, you, you want to go into a workplace. You want to go back to 
um, hanging around your friends and hanging around your family members and hanging around your grandparents. I mean, hell, I haven't seen my mom in, I don't know, it's going to be going on a year. I mean, this was a situation before my dad passed. I was seeing my parents, even though I live out here in Las Vegas, they live in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, the, great, the greatest place to live and grow up and raise your children and everything, everything in between. I used to see them four times a year. Now my mom is all by herself in terms of family members, in terms of immediate family members. You know, I'm her only son. Her husband passed away. So right now, you know, she has her family, she has her church members and she has her best friend, my godmother, who still lives out there. And she has really good friends that keep her going, like, you know, that keep her, uh, you know, happy and, and, and mentally going for it. But I haven't seen her in a, almost a year. And I miss my mom. I miss her greatly. But I understand the situation that we have right now to where I cannot see her. I cannot, even if I moved back to Maryland, even if I moved across the street, there is no way that I could physically see her because of the situation that she's in. I don't know if I have the virus or not. I don't know if I'm asymptomatic. I don't know. So I'm not going to definitely put my 86-year-old mother at risk. But somewhere down the road, I'm going to have to say, you know what? I'm going to have to make that decision to say, the chances, uh, the minimizing the chances, what I'm trying to say, in terms of, all right, you know, I, I can't go on, you know, in terms of waiting for a vaccine to where the chances of her dying from this virus are zero. I mean, there's going to have to come a time where I'm going to have to go see my mom, and if there's a 2 to 3 to 5% chance that she gets the coronavirus from me, do I put that at risk? I don't know. I don't know. That's a road I'll cross and that's a bridge I'll cross when I get to. But, you know, all of this is just to say that these are some of the decisions that are going to be every day for you, for me, for all of us in terms of how we live our society. And again, this all correlates back and this all ties back into UFC 249. There was a risk of someone catching the coronavirus at zero uh, when they put on this event. No. Nope. Who knows? I don't know if Tony Ferguson or I don't know if Justin Gaethje or I don't know if Francis Ngannou, I don't know if the, um, the, the, the Michelle Watterson, all of those who participated in the card. I don't, who knows? Who knows? But I think the UFC was responsible enough to put things in place to where, you know what? We have greatly minimized the risk for anybody to become infected with this disease. And I think the UFC showed the way to say, you know what, guys, we have to stop thinking about we have to wait till a vaccine or we have to wait till we'll be able to put people in the stands and the stadiums and the arenas. I, I think the UFC kind of started giving the impetus to say, hey, you know what, let's slowly but surely start seeing what we can do to get back to uh, having some type of normalcy in terms of playing these games, in terms of resuming these seasons, in terms of, you know, getting these sports leagues started. So... Heads up, man. Good job for the UFC. It was, for me, a thoroughly, thoroughly entertaining card. It was something different in terms of my experience watching the UFC. I've watched it at Buffalo Wild Wings. I've watched it at the Station Casinos. I've watched it live at the T-Mobile Center. Greg Maynard, when he fought uh, Frankie Edgar for, I think, the second time. I think I watched it at the T-Mobile Arena. Good atmosphere. Good-looking females. Good good vibes. That was a really fun atmosphere. Thank you very much for that one. For Frank Harnish and Armando Vasquez for taking me down there and watching that fight. Wonderful. But uh, first time watching the UFC by myself at my place 
with the arena being empty. A new, a new first for me on that one, but it looks like the way that we're going, it won't be the first time that's going to be happening. Though I guess if I want to keep watching the UFC and keep buying their pay-per-views, there'll be a lot of first, second, and third, and fourth, and fifth times that all that stuff happens. But overall, I'm just going to have to, you're just going to have to, we're just going to have to as a society kind of get used to what we saw from the UFC on Saturday night, the atmosphere, everything that took place for the next 12, 18 months or so. In sports, it's going to be the new normal. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right, here we go. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do talking about Justin Gacy, USC 249, Tony Ferguson. Ready? Let's go on to, ready? One, two, three, break. All right, here we go. Here we go. Hop one, hop two. Justin Gacy, Justin Gacy, 249, UFC 249, Omaha, Omaha. Tony Ferguson, El Cucullo. Ready? Hi. All right, here we go. Talking about... UFC 249, great card as I mentioned before. Man, I tell you what, the main card was everything that was supposed to be in terms of the main, main uh, the pay per view, main event card. Everything was the same except there was no <laughs> there was nobody in the audience, right? But the fighters walked out with music. Introduction of the fighters, Michael Buffer did an awesome job. Um, it was just kind of weird. And awkward, not hearing the roar of the fans, you know, as he makes his crescendo to announcing of announcing the fighters. Because by the time that Buffer, especially when we're talking about the main event of the evening, live from Vistar, Jackson, uh, Veteran Memorial here in Jacksonville, Florida, it's time! Five rounds in the UFC for the lightweight Heavyweight, lightweight, heavyweight, thank you. Lightweight championship in the world. Introducing first, fighting in this court. So, I mean, Buffer was doing his thing, right? He's a mixed martial artist. He's in five foot six and weighs in at 155 pounds. Fighting out of uh, Coconut, Coconut Creek, Florida, originally from this and the other. He is defending the reigning. I mean, so, you know, he starts going, he just starts going. And, you know, this and the other. Justin, the somebody, Gage. I mean, sometimes, man, you can just tell that the audience, as the roar from the crowd gets louder and louder as we get more excited into, into a big fight, you can almost you can almost hear the crowd just lifting Buffer even more to even greater heights of enthusiasm and passion and excitement to where it's like, man, you're almost ready to just, you know, I mean, a couple of times, I almost wanted to, I almost wanted, when I was listening to him give interviews or give the um, 
give the announcements up to fighters, man. There was a couple of times that Buffalo Wild Wings, man, like when Connor was fighting with Khabib, there was a couple of times I wanted to jump out of the seat and start beating up the guy I was next to. I was so fired up and amped up about the fight. But uh, again, he did a great job of having that passion and having that, that you know, Michael Buffer turn yeah, into the stuff. But it was like in front of nobody. So after he was done, and sometimes I think after Buffer says the name to, you know, I think his head's going to explode. That's how excited he is. But it was like, he just gave this, holy fracassin! I mean, it's just like, <laughs> you're just normally, you're just used to the roar of the crowd. It was just like, on this corner, man, it was like, huh, that's it, guys? Everybody out there give me some love? I mean, Dana, Kevin Ioli, one of the writers, somebody, the arena guy, this guy sweeping up the floor to the, Way in the back, y'all want to give a hoot and a holler and a hell yeah or something. I don't know what I mean. It, it was just weird just to be like, you know, again, that not having that, the, the, the roar of the fans and help with the whole atmosphere. Again, whether you were watching it live in the arena itself or whether you were watching it at home. I mean, the crowd really could sometimes just not only just uplift Michael Buffer, who's doing the announcement of the fighters and the fighters themselves but just watching it at home it just gets you more amped but again it was just like wow that's interesting nobody did all that nobody was sitting there doing anything so the octagon interviews after the fight was over with joe rogan that that took place i like what daniel cormier said about that though he said without the crowd egging them on to say something outrageous speaking about the fighters cormier was like you know without the crowd egging them on to say something outrageous or going into some stick or some character or anything like that. The fighters gave more genuine, thoughtful answers to Rogan's questions because it wasn't a situation they were trying to get a pop from the crowd or they were trying to get a roar of the crowd. So that was a really good point by Cormier. And I think, yeah, in a situation like that, I kind of liked it, the fact that, you know, the fighters seemed to be more of themselves and more open to talk about what was going down rather than to, you know, have some preconceived, okay, this is what I'm going to say and this is the direction I'm going to take the interview in. What Rogan asked me, asked me a couple of questions. I'm going to call out this guy or I'm going to turn to the crowd or I'm going to turn to my guy who I want to fight next or whatever and put on a show and do all that bullshit. I'm, I'm glad that those guys gave more thoughtful answers. So the main event, man, it was it was great. It was a great, great, great event or the great, great, great fight despite the one-sidedness of it. I mean, it was consistent action. There was brutality. There was skill. There was strategy. There was everything that you wanted except a clean knockout. It was Five rounds, basically, of, of nonstop action, but it wasn't wild, it wasn't crazy, it wasn't Forrest Griffin versus, uh, oh shit, <laughs> it wasn't Forrest Griffin versus, you know, that fight, I forget, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't wild and crazy in terms of, you know, I'm not I'm not one of these guys to where two guys just run out there and they just start swinging. It wasn't Shogun Hua versus Dan Henderson. Let's put it that way, all right? I mean, it was, there was brutality, there was skill, there was a lot of hard shots, but it looked like two guys who were high-level mixed martial artists, and it was an absolute joy to watch. Justin Gaethje was awesome, man. Beat Tony Ferguson decisively. Referee Herb Dean stopped the fight at 3 minutes, 39 seconds of the first round for the TKO. Man, it was, that fight was awesome. And again, the ending, 339, fifth round, it had to be done. Look at that. Oh, my goodness. How many shots can one human being take? I think this has to be a record for fight ending shots taken by one person. Well, this is not a regular human, right? 
Yeah. Is, Tony Ferguson is not a regular human. He is. Most people up. would be unconscious at this yeah. point. I mean, in the first round, from some of the strikes, he took those punches fresh, and now he's taking them beaten up. He checks it again. Every every kick he's checked. Come on, Tony. Oh, 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 he's hurt. He's hurt real, he's bad. real hurt. Oh, he's hurt yeah. bad. They're going to stop the fight. That's it. Oh, Justin Gaethje stops Tony Ferguson in round five. He's the UFC's heavyweight champion. I mean, that is the most amazing performance of Justin Gaethje's career. Spectacular. Yeah, man. Gaethje basically beat him up for four and a half rounds. By the end, both of Ferguson's eyes were swollen. He had a huge cut on his right cheek. The first time that Ferguson had been KO'd, TKO'd, the two losses before, he had lost three times. Two of those losses were unanimous decisions. He had lost one early in his career by a triangle choke, but it was kind of like when I saw Max Holloway when he fought Dustin Poirier. It was almost like, man, you know, that's kind of like the first time I've actually seen Max Holloway get hit or Max Holloway in trouble or Max Holloway stun or Max Holloway beat up. That was just interesting to see when Holloway fought Poirier for the lightweight championship. And that was the same thing with um, Tony Ferguson. It was like, man, I, I, I've never seen, I've seen Ferguson get rocked a couple of times. Keith Lee rocked him a couple, Keith Lee rocked him once in this fight. Um, Kevin Lee rocked him once in the fight. But to see Tony Ferguson just get beat up like that, it was just like, damn, I, Never, I've never seen this before. Tony Ferguson is one of my favorite fighters to watch. He's a beautiful, beautiful fighter. Very, uh, uh, just to see him get beat up like that, it was just unbelievable. But, man, the performance by Justin Gaethje. Best performance by a fighter in the main events of consequence that I think in a while, right? I mean, can you think of the performance considering the competition that he had in front of him? Can you think of a better performance? You can maybe pull out of your ass the 40-second destruction Conor McGregor gave to Cowboy Cerrone at 246 UFC, 246 in Vegas. But I'm sorry, Tony Ferguson is miles and eons ahead as far as the better fighter than Cowboy Cerrone, who lost again to Anthony Pettis. I mean, Donald Cerrone is getting to the point where Bellator is not going to even take him if he became a free agent on the market as far as his... How far the losses that Cerrone has been suffering that uh, the last couple of times he's fought in the octagon, but yeah. So as far as the performance that Justin Gaethje had, I mean, it was better than Conor McGregor at 246. It was better than Kamara Usman, the performance he put against uh, Kobe Covington at UFC 245 at the T-Mobile Arena, and that was one of the best fights I've seen in a while. It was better than the performance Israel Adesanya gave against Robert Whitaker, UFC 243. You remember that one in Melbourne, Australia? One of the most, most memorable, memorable thing was the dance dance moves that uh, Adesanya had in that fight. Probably one of the biggest, absolutely biggest sporting events in Australia in a while when those two got together. And again, the main reason why I say, in the, in the performances that Adesanya put on, the performance that Kumara Usman and Kobe Covington put on, the, the performance that Conor McGregor put on were fantastic, unbelievable, just wonderful. I'm not saying to denigrate that, but what I'm saying is if you consider the competition that Gaethje was in there against and the stakes that were that he was fighting for and the situation of how it came about to where he was even in the octagon in front of nobody to fight for an interim light, lightweight belt was remarkable. Awesome performance. Per, uh, Tony Ferguson was a pound-for-pound top-ten fighter coming in in almost everyone's ranking. ESPN had him the number six pound for pound fighter. The UFC had him at number 10. CBSSports.com had him at number eight. He had won 12 consecutive fights. He hadn't lost a fight in eight years. I mean, Tony Ferguson was the shit. I mean, some of the fighters that he'd beaten during his eight, the 
his, uh, his, his run, his 12-fight winning streak, ever since he lost to Michael Johnson in 2012, some of the fights that he's had and some of the opponents that he's beaten, Josh Thompson, Edson Barbosa, Rafael Dos Anjos, Kevin Lee, when he fought him for the lightweight interim belt, Anthony Pennis, Donald Cerrone, washed up, but still, I mean, impressive. And I always was sitting there, and I always thought it was almost like Tony Ferguson, just going back for you a little bit, Armando, it's almost like, get, get, the, uh, get the history books out, because I'm going to be educating on this one. It was like, it was like Tony Ferguson had become like the Archie Moore of MMA. The story of Archie Moore, where he fought years upon years, and uh, he was always regarded as the best, one of the best boxer and one of the best welterweights and the, one of the best light heavyweights of his time. But because of the situation where he didn't play ball with the mob and because of the color of his skin, that he never really got a shot, that he never really got a chance. So he just kept winning and he just kept winning and he just kept winning until at the age of 40-something, he finally won the light heavyweight or middleweight championship. I think it was the middleweight championship. Remember that? I mean, Tony Ferguson has some similarities to Archie Moore in terms of here's a guy in the UFC, it seems like if you win two or three fights in a row, you're automatically going to be fighting for the title. But whether it was because he didn't play ball with Dana White, whether it was perceived that, you know, because of who he was, that he wasn't going to be a big pay-per-view draw, whether it was a situation where he was injured when he had an opportunity to fight for the title, whatever it was, it was just a situation where Tony Ferguson never got an opportunity to fight for the belt. It was always an op- <coughs> excuse me. It was always an opportunity. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's always a situation where Tony Ferguson was always on the outside looking in, and the hardcore MMA fans knew who he was. Those who followed the sport knew who he was. He had the utmost respect from all of the fighters. So it was just a situation where, damn, he never really got the opportunity to fight for the belt, but we all knew how great, how awesome of a fighter that Tony Ferguson was. So you're speaking about a guy who during the 12th, fight winning streak, he had won eight fighter performance of the night award. Tony Ferguson was no joke. I said it before when he was going to fight Khabib and Magomedov and they were sitting there talking about, well, you know, hey, wait a second now. You know, everybody's talking about you know, Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor, Khabib and Conor McGregor. Man, hold on for a second because I'm telling you right now, if Tony Ferguson, and this was before everything got thrown into chaos, if Tony Ferguson and Khabib get into an octagon, Tony Ferguson could do to Khabib and ruin the plans of these future fights with GSP and with Conor McGregor the second time. Tony Ferguson could do to Khabib's fights down the road what Chris Weidman did to Anderson Silva. Remember this nonsense when they were talking about having super fights at the time with Anderson Silva fighting GSP and GSP was like, well, I'm not going to fight that gay at 185. I can barely make 180 after everything is all said and done. Just walking around. Now you want me to get up to 185? I don't think so. And then there was a situation, the dream matchup between Anderson Silva and John Jones at the time. And Chris Weidman was sitting there talking about, well, guess what, man? I'm about ready to fuck up all of y'all's dreams and hopes because I'm ready to knock this motherfucker out. Exactly what he did. Tony Ferguson was, I, I thought Tony Ferguson had, a, had an awesome chance to do the same thing with Khabib Nurmagomedov, where you guys are up here talking about, well, he's going to fight Conor McGregor again, and that's going to be the biggest fight in MMA history, and the only thing that could top that is if he goes ahead and he fights uh, GSP at 170, and this is going to be awesome. And I'm sitting up there thinking, of, saying to you guys, hey, man, wait a second. Tony Ferguson is good enough 
just because he's never fought for a belt, I mean a true real belt, he's fought for the interim belt a couple of times, and never for the actual championship belt. And if you take a look at who this guy is, you take a look at the way he fights, if you take a look at his resume, if you take a look at how great he is, shit. Don't be sitting there talking about Tony Ferguson being some stepping stone to get the bigger thing for Khabib. Uh-uh. Well, that's how good Tony Ferguson was. So when I say the performance that Justin Gaethje put on, and I say that it's better than Conor McGregor's destruction of Cowboys Cerrone, that was greater than Camaro's unbelievable fight against Colby Covington. It was better than Israel Adesanya taking the middleweight belt from Robert Whitaker. I'm saying all that. I'm using the greatness of Tony Ferguson as a fighter to say that what Justin Gaethje did to him, shit, that was that was unfucking believable. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. The podcast. So glad that you could be with us. So after the fight, speaking about the main event between. Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje. After the fight, Ferguson was transported to a local hospital where it was discovered that he suffered a broken orbital bone, or eye bone. Eye bones connected to the nose bone, and the nose bone connected to the jaw bone, and the jaw bone connected to the cheek bone, and the cheek bones connected to Justin Gaethje's fist. Because during that fight, that's the only thing that he was getting. Uh, Justin Gaethje's fist was hitting those, those uh, facial features for Tony Ferguson ate a lot. Along with the leg kicks, along with the body kicks, again he was he was broken up pretty good. And man, just to show you how tough Tony Ferguson was, I mean, what human being could stand to take those type of punches? I mean, he was getting hit with bombs, and Cormier and Joe Rogan and John Anik were just sitting there along with everybody else who was watching the fight, like you and me, saying, "How the fuck is this guy standing up after taking these shots?" It was just, and there was a situation where those guys were saying, "You know what, Kim." Justin Gaethje keep up this pace. He's going to wear himself out. You know, this, that, and the other. I was like, wear himself out? The only way he's going to, he's wearing, if he's wearing himself out, he's wearing himself out because he's hitting Tony Ferguson in the face so much. Yeah, my hands were getting tired. My arms were getting tired by me connecting with his jaw. I actually got tired (laughs) hitting him in the jaw of a situation like that. So it was, it was an awesome fight by Gaethje. Now, there was a situation Dana White brought up. After the fight was over, about could have could the cutting weight that Ferguson had to do not once but twice could have did it cost him in terms of his chance to win? Because you got to remember he'd been training for the Nargamedov fight on April 18th, and after the fight he was talking about, man, I've been doing this shit since November, getting ready for this fight. But when the coronavirus outbreak struck again, the fight for April 18th was was rescheduled for May 9th. And then there was a situation where Khabib was stuck over in Russia and he was doing Ramadan. So because of that, Justin Gaethje filled in. And so we're, taking, we're talking about a completely different style of fighter that Tony, Tony Ferguson had to go up against. So he also decided to cut to 155 the day before the original fight date. And then, you know, the situation where, look, I lost 12 pounds. I'm right back to my original fighting weight. I think he made some comment about that the next day or something like that, talking about, see, I lost 12 pounds just like that. So I'm ready to go. I don't need to, just because the fight was canceled or just, just because the card was canceled, that doesn't mean that I can, that I need to, you know, scrap and reboot and we'll talk two or three or four months down the road. No, I'm ready to go right now. So, again, after the fight, this is what Dana White had to say about it. I thought, I don't want to take anything away from Gaethje because he fought an incredible fight. But, I, I you know, I thought Tony looked, looked uh, off tonight. 
thought he looked slow. And I, and I would have to imagine that cutting weight twice in a month will affect you. Yeah, I, I agree with some of that. I think Dino is on point with some of that. He did look off. He did look a little slow. And cutting weight twice a month will affect you, absolutely. But I will say this. And also, you have to take into account, as I mentioned before, he had been training to fight Khabib Nurmagomedov before the outbreak struck. So it, again, was a completely different type of fighter <clears throat> that <clears throat> Tony Ferguson was going to be fighting with. But, you know, hey, let's, I, I don't think that's a legitimate enough excuse to say that that was the main reason why he lost. Gaethje took the fight on short notice. The, the man only had five and a half weeks of training to get ready for the fight. Do I think that everything that Dana White said in terms of the cutting weight, did that play a role? Did that kind of diminish some of the greatness that Tony could have brought to the ring, brought to the octagon that night? Yeah, absolutely, positively. But, okay, you kind of equate that to saying, okay, what happens if Justin Gaethje had a full training camp? And maybe it's a situation where, <clears throat> maybe it was a situation where, you know, my, my voice is breaking, maybe it's a situation where, a situation where, you know what, the longer Gaethje gets ready for the fight, maybe it becomes a detriment. Because you take a look at Gaethje, man, just his style, just the way that he is, just his personality. He's one of those kind of like, there he is, go get him. I mean, the more I think that, and it had, this had nothing to do, <clears throat> this had nothing to do with Gaethje's intelligence or anything like that. But sometimes, man, less is more. Don't complicate things. We're going to give you the basic game plan of how to fight this guy. You're going to go in there and you're going to do it. If you start trying to break down every angle and every nook and cranny and try to, you know, paralysis by analysis type of deal, for me, and look, I'm not an MMA trainer and Trevor Whitman, I'm trying to tell Trevor Whitman to do his job, but I think as a fighter like Justin Gaethje, you give him a simple game plan in terms of, okay, this is what we need to do. We're going to be working more on your strengths and more on your weaknesses. It's also more about the mental to make sure in terms of, man, don't go crazy, be, be disciplined, this, that, and the other. We have the game plan. The game plan is there. Go ahead and implement the game plan, but don't go nuts. Don't go too much on the enjoying the fight, so I'm just going to go hog wild. Don't do any of that stuff, man. Be cool. Be disciplined. Be focused. Take care of business. Sometimes it's easier to kind of have that sink in on five and a half weeks to say if it's going to be an eight-week camp. So, you know, maybe that's the situation where the short, uh, training camp um, was better for Gaethje, but you know I, I'm not going to use Ferguson's you know cutting weight as the main reason why he lost. If it was a situation where you know he lost the way Demetrius Johnson lost to Henry Cejudo, where it was by one point or something like that, it was a five round brawl and he just barely lost, and maybe something like well you know the cutting weight and the fact that he had to change uh, camps in terms of the, uh, the 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 game plan to fight a different fighter, maybe that went into the uh, works. But the way Justin Gaethje beat him up, I don't think that was enough. Did it play a role? Yes. But was it enough to say that's the main reason why he lost? No. No, I don't think so. There could have been a 10, 15, 20% reason on why he got his ass whooped by Gaethje. But 15, 20% is not enough to say, see that he would have won if everything would have been on the, on the normal. So, no, I don't, I don't think so. The... Uh, winner of that fight, weight cut or no weight cut, was without question, without doubt, without argument, without any type of discussion, Justin Gaethje.
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us talking about what's happening in the first live sporting event in a while, UFC 249, the main event, Justin Gaethje beating up on Tony Ferguson, stopping him in the fifth round, three minutes and 39 seconds. Woo, that was a good fight. That was a really good fight. Enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. So what does it mean for, what does this win mean now for Justin Gaethje? Yes, I understand that. This will, in all probability, lead him down the road of fighting Khabib Nurmagomedov for the lightweight championship. Very well deserved, I might add. But for me, when it comes to Justin Gaethje, this performance, on top of some of the other performances that he's given, that he's given the last couple of fights that he's had in the octagon, UFC. Let me get. Let me. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Justin Gaethje is a legitimate superstar. Legitimate superstar. The UFC can build around to strengthen their popularity amongst the sports fans. Not the MMA fans. Hardcore MMA fans, solid MMA uh, fans, UFC fans. They already know about Justin Gaethje. They already know about his style. They already know what a attractive fighter he is in terms of the way that he fights. But I'm talking about now, let's bring this out just a little bit more. Let's expand the spectrum just a little bit more. Justin Gaethje is a guy that you can use. Yes, you try with John Jones. Yes, Conor McGregor's already out there. Yes, to an extent, the Diaz brothers, you know, they have their little cult of personality. But I'm talking about Justin Gaethje being that guy, man. I mean, he has everything that it takes. Let's, let's, let's break it down, shall we? On why I say Justin Gaethje could be a legitimate superstar. Not just UFC superstar. And maybe not at the heights of a LeBron James or, a, you know, Messi or a Ronaldo. And I'm not talking about, like, as a international you know, football superstar. I'm not talking about Gaethje being at that level, but I am talking about just in terms of widening the space a little bit more, the superstar tag could be placed on Justin Gaethje. And this is the reason why. Let's take a look at it. He's a white American uh, guy with an exciting fighting style. He's a blue collar guy. He's an every man personality. He's humble. He's confident, but not cocky. The way that he fights, he's straightforward. Straightforward, just like his personality. He's straightforward and honest. He relates well to the average MMA UFC fan. It really does. And what he also relates to is just the average guy. And if you, did you take a listen to his um, interview in the Octagon with Joe Rogan after the fight? Listen. What a performance. Justin, you came in here tonight. This was a fight that because Nurmagomedov couldn't make it to the April card, you were you were slated to fight then on short notice, but you had the opportunity to truly prepare for this fight. And what a performance! Has it sunk in? I mean, how how good do you feel about that fight? I knew I was a killer stepping in here. I'm good, bro. I'm, I'm sure you knew you were a killer, but you also no knew Tony. Drug on earth, no better drug on earth. Adrenaline coursing through my veins. Uh, this is hard work. I've worked since I was four years old. It's each day at a time for me. I never look past one day. And you just have to be better than yesterday. That's all That's all it is. What we saw from you tonight is not just what we always see, which is incredible aggression and spectacular technique, but you were more measured. You were more calculated. Tell me about that. I have a world-class coach. I had to lose to change. Can't fix what's not broken. You know, once, uh, once I understood what was wrong, I was getting hit too much. And I was getting, I was honestly having too much fun. Both times I lost, I became complacent because I was having so much fun. And at this level, you absolutely cannot do that. I was fighting the best in the world. Khabib is the best in the world. I was, I've been working since I was four for challenges like this. 
And, um, you know, I'm happy to represent the United States of America against Dagestan or Russia's best. He's 28 now, and there's no other challenge I want right now. I want to fight him. Yeah, man. Adrenaline is one hell of a drug. He's been doing it since he was four years old. He never takes more than one day at a time, and he's better than the day that he was before. Yeah, man. I like that stuff, man. That resonates. That works, man. Especially what we're going through today, not just in this country, but in the world. I mean, what other way, how else are you going to take this? For those like myself who are not working right now, for those like myself who are battling unemployment, for those like myself who haven't gotten their stimulus check yet, I don't know why, for those who are just saying, look, hey, man, let me just get through today and I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. I'm just trying to get through today, man. I mean, right now it's 10 o'clock in the, in the morning. Let me see what I can do to get to 10.15. And then, I, then after I get to 10.15, let me see what I can do to survive till quarter of 11. And then 11 o'clock. And then the evening. And then the night. Let, let me see what I can do. Let me put a game plan together to get it to where I can put my head on my pillow at night so I can sleep and wake up and see another day. And then when the other day, the next day happens, then let me see what I can do to conquer that day and be better than I was the day before. That's Gagey right now. That's me right now. That's you right now. That's millions of people right now. Oh, I'm sorry. That's hundreds of millions of people right now. Oh, I'm sorry. In some instances, that's billions of people right now that can resonate from the from what Justin Gagey said. Never takes more than one day at a time and be better than what you were yesterday. Yeah. He gave credit to his coaches. Open a, was opening about about his past failures, so he showed a human side of him. He had to change what he was doing. He was having too much fun. And that's when he got complacent, and that's when he lost. How about that, man? A fighter up there talking about, yeah, I lost because I was having too much fun. I was losing because I was enjoying beating this guy up so much. I was enjoying going through this hell of getting hit and me hitting him that I got hit one too many times, and I had to change. And I had the intelligence, I had the maturity, I had the wherewithal to go ahead and do that. And then, instead of going all Conor McGregor and talking about, you're a chump, you're a fag, you're a loser, your dad's this and your religion's all this kind of nonsense and blah, 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 he respectfully called out Khabib for the title. Respectfully. And it was awesome. It was awesome. There was no errors. There was no bullshit. There was no nonsense. There was no, let me see, let me write this down and practice and perform this. There was no, let me look up shit, shit talking on YouTube so I can get some ideas, so I can get some quotes that I can use after this fight was over. It was 100% Justin Gaethje. It was awesome. It was fantastic. And I said to myself, superstar, superstar, superstar. Now, can Gaethje become a global superstar on the likes of a LeBron and all those? No, I don't think so. Number one, while... Yes, being a white American is awesome, it's great, it's a advantage in terms of the marketing ability. Unfortunately, he's not he's not six foot two or six foot three with impeccable speaking or as uh, speaking. You know what I'm saying? I mean he's not a six foot three, two hundred and fifty pound heavyweight. And he's also not a boxer, he's an MMA fighter, which still, while MMA is still on the move, while it's still you know, making inroads and has done some really great things. Still, it's not at the stature globally, I say, as a boxer is. So the fact that Justin Gaethje isn't 6'4", that he doesn't have movie star good looks, that he doesn't look like Robert Chambers or Ted Bundy. Why did I bring up Robert Chambers and Ted Bundy, Wendell? Really? You're going there? Hey, man, I had to. I'm sorry. I just finished watching a documentary on on, on uh, Chambers, on Richard Chambers, and I just had to go there. But what I'm saying, he doesn't have those... Those, those movie star good looks. So because of that, despite the color of his skin, 
the fact that, you know, there is a ceiling in terms of how big of a personality that he can be. He's an MMA fighter. He's not a boxer. He's five foot six. He's not six foot four. He's a lightweight. He's not a heavyweight. So, you know, so some of those things. But you know what, man? You know, I mean, you could bring up Conor McGregor and this, that, and the other. He doesn't, he's not a loud mouth, you know. But I, I will say this. Not everyone can have the same charisma or charm or charismatic qualities as an Anderson Silva in his prime or the Diaz brothers or Conor McGregor or, or Rampage Jackson. I mean, sometimes, you know, no matter what your stick is, if you try to build one, it just doesn't work. Charisma, marketability, drawing power, they come in all different shapes and sizes and, and forms. Gaethje is cut. If I was a marketing guy, here's what my deal would be with Gaethje. He's cut from the same cloth, the same as a, as, as, a, say, as a Frankie Edgar or a Forrest Griffin or a Randy Couture in terms of likability and relatability. That's what he is. He's the everyman guy. You know, he's, he, he's blue jeans wearing. He's kind of like Brett Favre in that, in that situation. He's the guy that, you know what, you want to go out and have a, a, a beer with. Because you know if there was some situations and there was a bar fight, you know you'd want to have Justin Gaethje by your side. I mean, this is the guy that you want to go out and share a beer with. This is the guy that you want to go out and listen to country music with. This is a, this is the guy where, you know, you want to go out and be and go hunting with. This is the type of guy who'd be driving. And, oh, look, I don't even know if the guy is in the four-wheeling or I don't know if the guy drives a pickup truck or whatever, everything like that and shares a beer. I don't, I, don't, I don't know Justin Gaethje's background well enough to even go in that direction, but if I'm a marketing guy, I mean, this is a guy who I want to uh, have on my commercial when you're talking about Chevy trucks. I mean, this is a guy who I want to be talking about if I'm going to be, uh, you know, Wrangler jeans or something like that, or cowboy hats or some nonsense like that. Justin Gaethje seems to be cut from that type of persona. He's middle America. You know, he's Kansas. He's Michigan. He's Western Pennsylvania. He's hardworking Scrabble, Ohio. That's what Justin Gaethje is for me. I mean, he's more Ohioan in terms of what I could do to try to relate to those types. And even Stipe Miocic, who has Ohio, Cleveland, that area dripping, running through his veins. You know, I, Justin Gaethje is that type of guy. Here's, here's another example of what I'm talking about. The, the interview that he did in the Octagon with Joe Rogan. This is another example where I'm talking about, yeah, UFC, superstar potential and this guy written all over him. You know, um, I feel bad for him because if that was me, I'd be because I came in here to die. I told my coaches in the back, you're not going to like it, but I'm ready to die tonight. And that's the mentality you have to come in here with. Um, it's not about winning or losing for me. It's about not disappointing myself, my family, and representing God to the best I can. Um, and being a good person. Helping my, helping my neighbor. That's all I care about. I, I live every day to help. I have a human services degree. If I wasn't doing this, I'd be doing social work somewhere. I'd probably be a probation officer. I want to work with at-risk youth. Um, I'm a killer in here, but as soon as I step out of this octagon, I, you will not see that in me. You see what I mean? You see what I mean? Unlike Chael Sonnen or Colby Covington, what Justin Gaethje was talking about, talking about how he would be upset like Ferguson if he would stop because he was ready to die. Well, he was actually ready to die to win that fight. For Justin Gaethje, I believe that. For him, that's real talk, man. That ain't some type of bullshit. That ain't some type of marketing ploy. That ain't some type of, I'm trying to do this to get more clicks. I'm trying to get more YouTube followers. I'm trying to get more Twitter followers. That's not Justin Gaethje when he's talking like that. That's real, man. That I, I believe he actually believes that. Not about winning or losing. It's about representing and not letting himself down, letting his family down, letting the Almighty One uh, down. 
talking about him being, you know, working as a social worker and, 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 and helping the community and helping others. Man, that's real talk. I actually believe that. Fighting is what he does. It's not who he is. He talked about, you know what, when he steps out of the uh, octagon, that part of Justin Gaethje going into regular society, not there. It's not happening. He wants to do social work. He wants to work with that at-risk uh, at use. He's not looking to, 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 to market products. He's not looking to become a quote-unquote superstar. He's not looking at any of those things. That's not what Justin Gaethje is, and I believe him. I absolutely, undeniably believe him. I would still do my best if I'm the UFC to see what we can do to, uh, you know, raise his profile. If I'm the UFC, I'm going to see what I can do to introduce him to the ESPN crowd, to the Fox Sports crowd, to the PTI crowd, to see what we can do. Those, whether it was around the horn, whether it was PTI, whether it was uh, Sports Center, I mean, that fight really didn't get the type of bump, or that fight really didn't get the type of attention that I thought it, I thought it deserved, especially when you're speaking about it being the first um, live sporting event to come on in almost two months. UFC, or not the ESPN, whose partners with the UFC, should have done a much better job in the aftermath to say, hey, man, that was an awesome fight. This guy that we got here, Justin Gacy, this guy's unbelievable. We got to get him. We got to do an interview on SportsCenter. We got to give him for five minutes on, on PTI, even though they don't do five more five good minutes because of the coronavirus and the situation that they're in. But there could be some situations, I mean, you know, that... You know, man, do something with Justin Gaethje. Let him go on with Scott Van Pelt. Let him do something in terms of uh, getting him out there, man, because Justin Gaethje, again, is a superstar. It was awesome to get that message out in terms of what he wants to do, in terms of his philosophy in life, in terms of, you know, the way he thinks and feels about that. In the octagon, about fighting and getting ready to die for what he believes in and all that kind of stuff, that's great. When you're interviewing Joe Rogan after a fight is over in the octagon in front of zero people in Jacksonville, Florida. But man, let's hear Justin Gaethje get that message out. Let's hear Justin Gaethje say those same things on SportsCenter with Scott Van Pelt. Let's see him on a, let's, let, let's see him go that direction. You know, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about, you know, building that superstar. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that all of a sudden now Justin Gaethje needs to get a Twitter uh, a Twitter, I don't even know if Justin Gaethje has a Twitter account, but I'm not saying that you know Justin Gaethje is, is doing this so he can get more Twitter Twitter followers or anything like that. That's what the man believes, and I think it's awesome. It resonates really well with average people. As I mentioned before, the only drawback to a superstardom is not a heavyweight. He's not six foot four. He doesn't have movie star good looks. He, uh, yeah, Ted Bundy and Chambers. Good God. <laughs> And I'm not talking about Tom, Tom Chambers either, the uh, six foot eleven uh, forward who played for the Seattle SuperSonics and then for the uh, for the uh, Phoenix Suns, the white boy that could jump out of the gym. I'm not talking about that Tom Chambers. I'm talking about the other Richard Chambers or whatever the guy's name was, uh, the preppy murderer. So okay, whatever, whatever. So here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, Wendell Wallace is my name. Talking about what's going on in the world of sports is my game. Where does Gaethje's place in the UFC? as far as the men's pound for pounds stand right now. As of the time that I'm recording this, recording this in the early morning of Tuesday, May 11th, 2020, where does Gaethje place in the men's pound for pound? Because if you take a look at the top 10, you've got Khabib, you've got John Jones, Hendrick Cejudo, Stipe, Israel Adesanya, Cormier, Kamara Usman, Alexander Volkanovski, Conor McGregor, Max Holloway, those are basically, if you take a consensus as of right now, those are the top 10. 
I would put Gaethje, after this performance, I would put him number eight because before this, Gaethje was nowhere to be found in the top ten. They even, I mean, there were some situations where I didn't even see him amongst the considerable, you know, those who were considered considered for the um, top ten. So, again, Khabib, John Jones, Triple C. I'll get to Triple C in a second there. Uh, Stipe, DC, Israel Asanya, Kamaru Usman, Volkanovski, McGregor, Holloway, Mad Max. I would put Gaethje probably number eight. I would put him behind Usman and Volkanovski, all champions except for Cormier, who was a champion at one time. I, I think I think he's there. Before beating Ferguson, you know, his last three fights after losing to Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier, two, well, Poirier is an up-and-coming light, up lightweight. Eddie Alvarez was a champion at one time in the lightweight division for the UFC. He beat James Vick at Barbosa, Cerrone. I mean, so it wasn't like he had a string of just, like, high-quality, unbelievably tough, we got to put him in the top 10 pound-for-pound type of fighters, but I think the... I think the fight, I think the victory, I think the way that he beat up on Tony Ferguson, I think that had, that has catapulted him into the top 10 again. I'm not going to put him under guys, over guys who are, who are holding belts right now, but I think Justin Gaethje, at the very least, is the best fighter not to be a champion right now in any weight class. So, yeah, man, there you go. There you go with Justin Gaethje, a superstar, superstar, the everyman, Justin Gaethje, UFC, get it done. World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about the events at UFC 249, talked about Justin Gaethje being a superstar, talking about the new normal in terms of dealing with the coronavirus while there's no vaccine. This is what is going to be on the scene. So in terms of, you know, having a, watching sports now with nobody in there for the foreseeable future, football, baseball, basketball, boxing, MMA, golf, tennis, all of this stuff, wow, the new norm, the new the new situation that we have. So that's what I've been mainly talking about with the UFC. I'm still, like, buzzing about the UFC 249 main event, though, but Ferguson, Justin Gaethje, really am. Oh, man, really am. Ooh, woo, I have to adjust myself in my seat. Don't walk away, don't walk away, not now that I'm inspired. Little Four Tops. Oh, won't you stay? Please, won't you stay? Come on, girl, come around now. You talk about a second act of some really good songs after they left Motown. Or when Motown left them, let's put it that way, because they had Baby, I Need Your Lovin', Sugar Pie, Honey Bunch, Standing in the Shadows, all those great, great songs. I mean, for about two to three years, everything that the Tops and Levi Stubbs sang, it was unbelievable. But then 
after I guess what was it? Reach out, reach out, I'll be there to love and comfort you. After that, then you know, Motown went to uh, L.A. because Barry Gordy was more interested in making movies than he was making records. And with Detroit burning, the Tops decided they were going to stay in Detroit, look for a couple of uh, other places to uh, record music, caught the blank on some others. But uh, yeah, man, that, that that little catchy tune that they did in the 80s. Don't walk away, don't walk away. Not now that I'm inspired. Don't let me down. Promise me you'll be around. I'll take the line. Just say that you'll try, girl. If any time I can even sound remotely close to Levi Stubbs, you know I'm going to be singing my song. I'm going to be singing his song, baby. Wonders World of Sports. Oh, back to sports. All right. All right. Got that out of my system. Don't walk away. Don't walk away. Not now while I'm doing a podcast. Main event. UFC 249. Tony Ferguson talking about. Tony Ferguson here on Wendell's World of Sports. Wendell Wallace being your host. So, what does this mean for TF? Tony Ferguson. El Coolio. I guess that's what his nickname is. What does it mean for him moving forward? I mean, how much of this beating that he took will affect him the rest of his UFC career? Because we all know Toby Ferguson was a legitimate contender for the uh, lightweight championship for years upon years and never got the opportunity. Now, after the beating that he took, is he considered a legitimate contender anymore? Because, hey, before y'all go crazy on me, before you start rolling your eye, before you start throwing things at me, before you start holding me in effigy, put away the pitchforks and the baseball bat and the other weapons. Listen, listen, Mr. Vasquez, listen. There's been examples of fighters. I mean, you know this, right? There's been examples of fighters of having their physical skills basically beat out of them and, not, and them not being the same type of fighters that they were before. The best example that I can give is the documentary that I have on the background, that I have on the background right now that I'm watching while I'm doing this podcast, which is the thriller in Manila. The third fight between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Frazier won by technical knockout after Frazier's chief second, Eddie Futch, asked the referee to stop the fight following the end of the 14th round. Remember that? Remember after the fight? Ali fought 10 more times, went 7 and 3. Yeah, he beat Ernie Shavers. He beat Jimmy Young. He beat Ken Norton, really, in a fight in, in, um, a fight in, in uh, New York City where he fought Norton. I think it was in 76. He didn't win that fight. There were there was a couple of times you could you could make a strong you could make a strong argument that at least toughest opponent wasn't Joe Frazier it was Ken Norton you could also make a strong you could also make a strong case that Ali didn't win any of the fights against Ken Norton he didn't win the first one because he got his jaw broken the second round even though Norton is talking about nah he really got his jaw broken the fifteenth but he lost to uh, Norton in San Diego and that was back, I think back in seventy three or something like that and then. He fought him again in '76, and he at at, at in um, Yankee Stadium, and he should have lost that fight. Many people thought he lost that fight. So, man, you could say you could have a strong argument that no, it wasn't Joe Frazier who was Ali's biggest opponent. It was our biggest nemesis. It was Ken Norton Jr. But basically, Ali was seven and three after that. Was never really the same fighter after that beatdown, as Ali has said many times. It was the closest thing to death. 
that uh, he had ever been through. Frazier had two more fights after that. He got KO'd in the fifth round by George Foreman after recuperating from that beating that he took from Ali. And then after a five-year layoff, he had a draw against some guy named Floyd Cummings. And he was kind of like, yeah, we're done. I'm done with all of this. But yeah, so what I'm talking about is, man, you know, you know the, the beating that Tony Ferguson took. And you're speaking about the age of 36 years old. Well, he's going to spend some time trying to get that orbital bone fixed up. But man, have we seen the last again? How much of a toll, how much of a beating affected Tony Ferguson moving forward? Is he ever going to be the same type of fighter? Melton Taylor versus Julio Cesar Chavez, March 17th, 1990. Chavez won, won on the stoppage with two seconds left in the fight. Going into that round, Meldrick held a was leading the two or the three uh, scorecards. Then he was barely hanging on, barely hanging on, barely hanging on. And that in that 12th round, barely hanging on, barely hanging on. Finally got dropped by uh, Chavez. And then this happened. If he gets up, he probably wins the fight. I can't believe it. Unbelievable. Richard Steele stopped the fight with fewer than five seconds to go. You're going to watch Lou Duba go crazy now. You're going to watch Lou Duba go absolutely berserk. Okay, now look. All right, look, I'm saying Tony Ferguson didn't didn't absorb the beating that uh, Meldrick Taylor took in that fight. I remember watching that fight in San Diego with my man Dave O'Neill. I remember that fight. That was vicious. That night I went up to a uh, long night on that one. But, man, that was, a, that was a brutal fight. Brutal. Brutal. And Meldrick Taylor was never the same after that. He was sent to the uh, hospital. He suffered a facial fracture. He was urinating blood. His face was grotesquely swollen. He was beat up to the face, the body, the brain. He showed signs of disorientation and short-term memory loss, combat head injuries and concussions. Meldrick Taylor was never the same. His speech was slurred. Go YouTube the uh, fight between Chavez and Meldrick Taylor, the first one. Watch that documentary. And watch the end where they showed him the way that he was talking, the way that he was slurring his speech. He was never the same fighter. Now again, 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 again. Tony Ferguson did not absorb that type of beating. But still, you have to wonder, the beating that Tony Ferguson did take, I think it was on the same lines as Junior Dos Santos versus Cain Velasquez back at UFC 155 and 166. Do you remember the four or five rounds of just getting his ass whooped that Cain Velasquez put on Junior Dos Santos? Dos Santos? It was brutal, man. It was absolutely brutal. Junior Dos Santos has never been the same since those two fights. He was never really the same after the first beatdown that he received from Velasquez. Why they were going to put that man in the same octagon with him for a second time, I have no idea. But damn, ever since those two fights with Velasquez, he's been, speaking of Dos Santos, he's been 5-4. and four. He's lost two times in a row. Francis Nugando, I think, knocked him out within .5 seconds. He's been KO'd in each of his four losses. Junior Dos Santos is not fighting for the heavyweight championship in a division where they need some folks to come up and fight for the heavyweight championship. Junior Dos Santos is is very, 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 very close of being like in Czech Congo territory where it's kind of like, look, there's no, you're a draw, you're a name, but there's no reason for me to keep you around in our organization. Hello, Bellator. Hello, one. I mean, there's another organization, but Junior Dos Santos 
before his name completely fades, fades into oblivion, I don't think he should be fighting in the UFC anymore. And the UFC need, needs names in the heavyweight division, but Dos Santos is not that guy anymore. Now, many people still think that he is. And he was never the same after Velasquez beat him and beat him the way that he did. Another guy, remember Hendon Barral? Remember that guy who had, I think he won like 31 fights in a row or some nonsense like that? I mean, he was on his way of being one of the greatest Brazilian fighters of all time, along with Jose Aldo and the Nogueira brothers and those guys. What happened to him? UFC 173, May of 2014. Burrell lost to uh, TJ Dillashaw. He got rocked in the first round. He spent the next three or four rounds trying to shake the cobwebs as Dillashaw continually beat the shit out of him. Remember that? Well, if you don't look it up, it was brutal. Well, after that fight, Burrell went 2-8. and eight. He lost five straight before being released by the UFC in 2019. I'm sorry. Those are the things that you have to think about when it comes to Tony Ferguson in terms of the beating. And when you speak about the lightweight division, he's not going to get the Uriah Faber treatment. Where he goes and fights somebody once after a loss and then he fights for the title again. And if he loses the title, then he'll fight one more time after that and then he'll win and then he'll fight for the title again. And then he'll lose to the title and he'll lose in the title fight and then he'll go back and have one more fight win and then he'll get another shot at the title. I mean, he, the, 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 the Tony Ferguson isn't receiving the Uriah Faber treatment in terms of his opportunities to fight for the championship. So I don't know. I don't know what type of fighter Tony Ferguson is going to look like when everything is all said and done. And if he gets back into the octagon, how old is he going to be? How old is he going to be? 37? Now, I know that this is a guy who can work out forever. And if you take a look at the fight, even though he was getting his ass whooped, I think many just mere mortals or any just exceptional mortals would have probably fallen in the second round. So Ferguson to take that beating like he did. But that was a situation where I'm thinking to myself, maybe if I'm looking... At the best situation for Tony Ferguson as a father, as a husband, and as a future fighter in terms of his availability and viability to fight for the championship, maybe it's a situation where I stop, I stop the fight after the third round or I throw in the towel midway through the fourth round in a situation like that, especially after the third round where it was like, look, man, you're down 3-0 and you're getting your ass whooped. If I don't see anything from you in this fourth round, what's the use of going on? Because... Ferguson never had the power to knock somebody out with one punch. It was a situation where Ferguson was going to wear you down, beat you up, bloody you up, and then take you out. Sort of kind of like what uh, Justin Gaethje did to him. So if I'm Ferguson's corner, I'm sitting up there saying, hey, look, man, you're already down three rounds. You're getting your ass whooped. You got a, you got a son at home. You got a wife. You've got you know, other things that you want to do in your life. There's still a possibility at 36 you can recoup and try after winning two or three more fights to go ahead and fight for a championship again before you turn 40, possibly, maybe. I'm not sending you out there in the fourth and fifth round to get your ass whooped even more. Let's save the little that we've got and come back, recuperate, and try again. Instead of having him go out there, and I know Ferguson's up there talking about taking me out on my shield and this, that, and the other. No, man, that's, that's what referees and that's what reasonable people are there for. You are supposed to be irrational. That's the mentality that you have to have as a fighter. Good, fantastic, wonderful. Absolutely. But it's my job to make sure that you don't kill yourself. It's my job to make sure that your child doesn't grow up without that your child grows up with a father. I'm the person to make sure that your wife is not a widow by the time she's in her thirties. That's not the that's not the deal. 
I mean, that's cool, Tony, to speak like that. And that's cool, Justin, to, to talk like that. And other fighters in the combat sports to talk about, yeah, you know what? I want to be the guy that's going to be taking out on my shield. Remember Deontay Wilder? The stop against um, uh, Tyson Fury where he was up there whining and complaining about I should have been knocked out, I should have been taken out, I should have been carried out. Yeah, all that stuff sounds great and wonderful until it actually happens. And then you realize that, you know, your son is not going to become a better man or a better human being. Your children aren't going to become better human beings without you around because decide, daddy decided selfishly that he would rather die than to have me, than to be a father or his wife being great. Now I'm a widow at the age of 28. Why? Because my father, my uh, husband thought it was machismo to go ahead and die in a ring. Whoop the fucking damn do. Especially in a fight like boxing and MMA where I'm not going to be taken care of. Yeah, gee, thanks. What a guy, you know. So if I'm the cornerman and I care about Tony Ferguson, I don't give a fuck about him wanting to be taken out on a stretcher or taken out on my shield or all that kind of bullshit, man. This is a business. You're supposed to be able to maximize what you need as far as financially is concerned and to make sure that you live to be a nice, ripe old age with grandkids and all that good stuff and still remember who the fuck you are and still remember who your kids are and still remember what you did five minutes ago. Though That's, that's what you want. While being rich, what use is it? What use is it, Tony and Justin and everybody else to be sitting there talking about? Yeah, take me out on my shield so I can possibly die and whoop the damn do. And when I'm forty and fifty and sixty years old, I have, I'm, a, I'm a complete vegetable, and I'm a, I'm a I'm a anchor to my kids and my wife. I mean, you know what what is all that about? Again, the mentality I understand, but thank goodness that's the reason why we have cornermen. That's the reason why we have a referee. So. Um, Tony Ferguson's corner, I would have said, look, man, you have one more round going in round four. You have one more round to show me something because if you're not, and if I see you in midway through the fourth round and you're still getting your ass whooped, I'm throwing in the, uh, throwing in the, t the towel for you. I'm calling off the fight. That doesn't make you a bitch. That doesn't make you a coward. That doesn't make you gutless. That doesn't make you anything. It makes me smart and it makes you keep on living. So, so there you go. So after the fight, of course, Tony letting his emotions get the best of him. But then again, it's like, hey, man, you hadn't, you hadn't, you hadn't lost in, in eight years. You hadn't lost in 12 fights. I'm quite sure he doesn't even know how to act when he loses. And the opportunity and the thought that went to his mind like, shit, I just gave away the opportunity for me to fight for the uh, heavy, for the uh, lightweight championship, which would mean more money. Shit, fuck, damn. So when Gaethje, after the fight was over at the beginning, initially, where he came over, it was like, hey, man, good fight. And, um, Tony pushed him away a little bit. After he got his emotions in check, he was classy and gracious in defeat afterwards. I was glad to see in the octagon that uh, he said this to Joe Rogan and the way he presented himself. Amazing fight and just a, 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 an incredible war. What did you expect coming in here and what, if anything, was surprising? Man, it's been a long camp. I'll be real. Uh, we've been preparing since November. Uh, Obviously, the 18th didn't fall through with Khabib. Obviously, Justin was the only one that wanted to sign on the dotted line. Uh, just a long camp, and then just, you know, not, the weight cut had nothing to do with it. Justin's a tough son of a I'll be real. Um, we're prepared for Khabib, not too much of a striker. It happens, man. What can you do, man? But uh, I would have much rather got finished instead of having somebody step in in it. I was still inside of it. Even though I, uh, you know, he stopped, I wish I would have walked in and I got finished. Well, you are a champion, and uh, I'm sure that's how you would want would have wanted to go out Give us your thoughts on what happens from here. Do you go back and reassess, or do you jump right back in? 
let's go back and get, uh, you know what I mean, uh, the consolation rounds. You have to win back, and you have to obviously earn it. Um, props to Justin, like I said, and his team. Tough son of a And uh, thank you for taking the fight, Justin. Uh, hopefully the crowd, everybody, faith, family, and friends. Remember, we did this, guys, for you. So uh, bring the sports back, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy the fight, man. And uh, for my kid, I love you, son, and my wife. Uh, I'm okay, and everybody else in my family just want to say thank you very much for the support, and I'm glad to see you again. Good job, Tony. Good job. Good job. As again, one of my favorite fighters. We talked about preparing for the fight since November. Gave props to Gaethje. Didn't make excuses about the weight cut, which he could have been KO'd instead of having the referee stop the fight. Again, he's just doing his job. But uh, again, he ain't getting the Uriah Faber treatment. You know, winning a fight, getting another chance at the championship. I, I wow, man. I was just thinking. When I was thinking about this on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. I was thinking, man, you know, Ferguson could go down as the greatest MMA fighter to never win a championship. Now, I, don't, I don't count interim belts. I don't count bad motherfucking belts. Those don't count for me. Legitimate championship belts. Ferguson could go down as the greatest fighter to never win one. You can put him in the same category as like the Diaz brothers, Donald Cerrone, Damian Maya. Uriah Faber, all of these guys who are like really, really good, really great fighters. But it's like Faber fought for the championship belt a couple of times and lost. Cerrone fought for the championship a couple of times and lost. Damian Maya fought for the belt a couple of times and lost. Now, I don't think Nick, I don't think Nate has fought for the championship. I don't think he's fought for the welterweight or lightweight championship. I know his brother Nate fought um, George St. Pierre and lost. But man, in terms of just Ferguson might not even get ever get the opportunity to fight for a belt. Damn, man. That's that's crazy, man. And I'm rooting for him again. I mean, him, Kamara Usman, Max Holloway, Daniel Cormier, as of right now, they're my fir- current uh, favorite fighters. So it was like kind of crushing. And the realization that it's like I, I kind of rolled the dice and took this fight against Gaethje. How much... How much is cachet is that going to give him moving forward? Because he can easily say, look, man, I'm not really interested in fighting three or four more times. I'm not going down the same road or taking the same journey I did to get to this point like I did before. I'm 36 years old. You know, by the time I get back in the octagon, I'm going to be 37. I don't got another three or four or eight years to uh, get back to this point again. I mean, I kind of did y'all a solid in terms of taking this fight and kind of putting on this card. Um, you kind of kind of give me a solid, even if I don't deserve it. Just like Jose Aldo. You got to give me the Jose Aldo treatment. You know, even if I'm losing a couple of times in a row, you still got to get me in that mix to uh, fight for the championship. Now, who does he fight next? Tony Ferguson? I don't know, man. I have no idea. If I, if I was handling the guy, and I don't handle anybody, you handle horses like human beings. But if I was working with uh, Tony Ferguson, his next fight after he's healed up both physically and mentally, I would go in there and put him against someone that he can beat. Not easily, but someone that he can beat. Maybe an Alan Quinta, maybe an Edson Barbosa type, maybe a Gregor Gillespie, somewhere around there. Put him in one of those type of fights. You know, let him fight on the first or second fight of the of a of a main event card or a pay per view card. Maybe have him in there in a Fox Sports. ESPN, not Fox Sports, Fox Sports isn't with them anymore. An ESPN type card, you know, something like that. 
put him in there just to kind of get his momentum back, just to kind of let people re- get a different view, different picture for people. At the last picture we, we, we see of Tony Ferguson as of right now, him losing. I would go in there, put him in there to someone who he can win. And then after that, you would have a greater argument to make that he should be fighting for a championship. Again, especially after what he did for the company and taking this fight. I would not have his next fight be against Conor McGregor or the winner of Khabib or Justin Gaethje. No, 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 no. Now, I want to get that taste back in his mouth in terms of winning again. I want to have his hand raised again. I want to have that feeling of him winning and getting that bonus check, that fight of the night check, this time with him being on the winning end. No, no, no. I do not put him in there against Conor McGregor or the winner of Khabib or Gaethje. Because if you do, and he loses again, then where does he stand? If he puts him in there against, if you put him in there against McGregor, and you could be talking about, hey, payday, 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 that's fine and everything. And again, being 37 years old, Tony Ferguson ain't going to be fighting for another five, six, seven years. We hope. But so the argument is, you know, put him in there against McGregor. He cashes in on that payday for that hard work, for everything that he put in there. McGregor beats him, and then Tony can go back to the end of the end of the line, but at least he'll have a boatload of money sitting there waiting at the end of the line. Maybe that argument you can make, but no, if I'm, if I'm a guy who's working with Ferguson and I have his best interest at heart and I say, you know, Tony, you've got maybe three, four more years because this guy's such a genetic freak, a genetic workout uh, conditioning marvel that maybe he could be, you know, still a top tier fighter for the next two or three more years. Okay, I, I say no. I'm going. We're going to build it back up again by having you fight one or two more good fights before you fight for the title. Who knows? My flush is out. You might be fighting Connor for the title. You might be fighting Khabib for the title still. You might be fighting Gaethje for the title again. Who knows, man? We put you in there against uh, Edward, Edwin Barbosa type, an Alan Quinta type. Maybe the next fight you fight a, a Dustin Poirier, maybe someone like that. And then we'll move you up and fight for the title. But your next fight, after that beatdown that you receive, I say, no, no, no. You will not be fighting someone the caliber of a Conor McGregor or someone like Khabib or Justin. Ain't going to do it. And you also have to remember, man, there was, there's been some history in terms of Tony kind of loosening a little bit. If you remember the report in March of 2019, his wife, Christina, filed a restraining order against him, alleging uncharacteristic uh, behavior such as severe paranoia, not sleeping for days, tearing apart their house, their home fireplace, believing that a tracking chip was inserted into his leg during reconstructive knee surgery. You know, now, I'm going to say this right now. Ferguson's wife did not claim any form of abuse or violence from him and claimed she filed, uh, it was the restraining order that was brought out on him, so the claims that she filed the restraining order as a precautionary measure to get Ferguson the necessary help for his mental state. So, okay, it wasn't a situation where he donning more to his wife or something or something of that nature. Thank God. So it's like, okay, it's something where, you know, he was kind of losing his mind a little bit. But um, before I start having him talk about fighting the winner of the lightweight championship fight that's coming up, Hopefully between Khabib and Gaethje or, you know, is he going to be fighting McGregor and how much money he can make and all that kind of stuff. Before, if I really care about Tony Ferguson, before I start getting into any of that nonsense, let's kind of take a look to see 
how his mentals are after his loss. How does he come out of surgery? The weeks that he's healing, the fact that he might not be able to train the way that he wants to train. Let's see first how he is mentally before we start saying, okay, let's put him back in the octagon. Let's, let's start, you know, you know, working on the path for him to get back for a chance of winning the lightweight championship. So, man, good luck to you, Tony. Good luck to you. I mean, you're a warrior, man. You're, you're all hard. You're great. You're a great fighter, you know. So I'm just wishing you nothing but the best. World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. As I mentioned before, I have the um, a documentary, a really great HBO documentary about the thriller in Manila, the fight, the third fight between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali, and they're kind of giving a background, not just the fight, but the trilogy and the uh, background of each man and, and what led up to the fight, and they're showing the first fight and the second fight and all that kind of stuff. So I'm looking right now, I'm in the process, or right now on the screen, they're talking about the interview that Frazier and Ali did. And that's when they uh, got into a brawl on the set, Howard Cosell was interviewing him. And I'm just sitting up there, man, I, I you know. <laughs> so, you know, both guys are upset. Both guys are surly. Both guys, one of the few times Ali wasn't, you know, doing the thing, you know, and everything. You could tell that he was the... He was in a bad mood, and Frazier with Ali is always in a bad mood, the way uh, Ali was taunting him and doing all those things. And both of them looked like they didn't want to be there. Both of them looked like they didn't want to be around each other. Both of them looked like they didn't want to be around Howard Cosell. It was just a matter of, you know what, something bad's going to happen here in terms of this ain't going to be cheery, cheery, ha, ha, hee, hee. So <laughs> Frazier gets up because they're both, both going at each other, and Ali's going at him, and Frazier's going back at him, and, you know, course, as we know, Ali could give him the Fraser skin like no other, of course, and Fraser finally had enough, so he stood up, and he was like, man, basically, you know, we're you know, get to talk and shit, and this, that, and the other, so it looked like someone from, I don't know, it was uh, uh, Ali's brother, or someone kind of stepped up, and kind of, you know, because Ali was sitting down at the time, he's like, hey, man, calm down, Joe, Joe, calm down, calm down, I guess Ali was like, got him, so he's like, calm down, Joe, Joe, just, you know, relax, man, just that, and the other, and, you know, Joe was kind of fired up, so the guy comes over, I get from Ali's camp, and kind of looks to be like a mediator, like, hey, Joe, you know, calm down, and Frazier looks at him, growls at him, and says, you want some of this? I mean, me? I don't care how much money Ali would have been paying me, I don't care how great, and Ali's my favorite athlete of all time, the most revered, and all that kind of stuff, him, Len Bias, Magic Johnson, uh, you know, Roger Federer, and those guys, so Ali is at the top of the top. I don't care how much I revered, and I don't care how much he was paying me. If I'm going there to be like, hey, Joe, just calm down, man. He's just bullshitting. He's just fucking around with you. Don't worry about it. If Frazier looks at me and says, you want some of this? My next my next statement is, no, Ali, see you later. That's <laughs> just, no, I'm not going to be dealing with that. No, uh-uh, no. Give it up for the folks who actually broke up that fight, too. Ali and Frazier, when they started kind of, kind of tussling on the ground, I mean, they weren't any punch it thrown or anything, but Ali 
jumped up and grabbed them and tried to subdue them and they both went to the ground. Shit, I don't care. Again, if I'm the bodyguard, if I'm security, I don't give a fuck. I am not getting in the way of those two. Give it up to those folks who actually went over and tried to break those two up, especially Joe Frazier. No, 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 no. Uh-uh, I am not getting in between those two. Oh my goodness, they're fighting, Wendell. We have to do something. No, nah, it's okay, they're fine. Now nah, they'll, they'll work it out. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to stay way over here. Mm-mm, I'm not getting in front of that. Yep. No, no, Joe looks pretty pissed off, so nah, uh-uh. I'll even fuck it with him, so nah. I want to sit here and relax. I'm not going to, uh, yeah, I'm not going to be doing any of that shit, so. The documentary on HBO, you can see it on YouTube, if anybody here wants to learn anything. Ali Fraser, really good in-depth look at what was going on between those two during their trilogy and during their rivalry that they had spanning, I guess you could say, what, 10 years or so? 70, what, the Thriller in Manila was 75, and they fought in 71 or something like that. So they've known each other since 67, 68. So, I mean, hell, you're talking about a seven, eight-year run of that shit going on. So really, really good stuff. HBO has always been awesome documentaries. I will give them credit for that. They are really good when it comes to that kind of stuff. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Going back to... UFC 249 talked about the main event, which was Justin Gaethje and Tony Ferguson. Kind of talked about that enough. What about Henry Cejudo? Triple C beats Dominic Cruz. Uh, Cejudo joins Daniel Cormier, who won the lightweight, light heavyweight, and heavyweight championships as the only fighters in UFC history to successfully defend their title in multiple weight classes. As we know, Henry Cejudo is also the former flyweight champion. So, you know, look, Cruz deserved a payday, but really not the opportunity to fight for the belt. I mean, this was Dominic's first fight in, what, 1,226 days. It was the second longest layoff before a title fight for a challenger in UFC history, only behind GSP, which was 1,449 days. So, afterwards, and it was, look, it was Henry with the man. I mean, it was looking to be a competitive fight, um, first round, I mean, Cejudo was going all Jose Aldo on Dominic Cruz's legs uh, with the leg kicks, but it looked like in the second round, Dominic made a couple of adjustments. He was doing some work. Now, I don't think that he was, Cejudo was in any danger of losing the fight. I think it would have been a situation where if Cejudo didn't knock him out or finish him, it would have been an easy 50-45, to 49-46 type win on all three scorecards for Cejudo, so... I don't think there was any chance that Dominic Cruz was going to win the fight, but, you know, there was, uh, after the headbutt in the second round, you know, um, Cejudo hit Cruz with a vicious knee, stunned him, put him on the ground, hit him with 11 straight shots. Referee came and stopped the fight. Cruz was talking about, nah, man, I was good. I was good. This, that, and the other. Nah, man, you were done. You were done. It was a good stoppage. Really good stoppage. So Cejudo retains the championship, returns. Retains the Bantamweight Championship. And then, in the octagon afterwards, does this. Yeah, thank you, Joe. And uh, I actually kind of want to make an announcement, man. Uh, Uncle Dana, UFC, everybody, thank you so much. Uh, Hunter Campbell, all the UFC staff. Joe, I'm happy with my career. I've done enough in the sport. I want to walk away. I want to enjoy myself. I'm 33 years old. I have a girl now, a man who's watching back home. I eventually want to start a family. Since I was 11 years old, I sacrificed my whole life 
to get, to get where I'm at today. I'm not going to let nobody take that from me. So I'm retiring tonight, Joe. I'm 33 years old. I'm happy with my career. Again, Uncle Dane, I want to I wanna say thank you for everything. You're, you're the man. Everybody here, Heidi, everybody, thank you so much, man. I'm triple C's out. You guys have to hear my ass no more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll believe it when I see it. Not, not buying that. Not buying that whatsoever. Giving thanks to everyone. Uncle Dana, 33 years old with a family, sacrificed since he was 11. I buy it, understand it. Triple C out, very Kobe Bryant-ish. But this whole nonsense about retiring, eh, I think what he's really saying is, I want more money. <laughs> that's what he's really saying. And that's one of the reasons why he was, you know, after he won the belt, or after he retained the belt, and um, after beating Marlon Morales, he was talking about, yeah, you know, I want to be the legend killer. I want to fight Uriah Faber, Dominic Cruz, and Jose Aldo, this, that, and the other. And we were sitting there, sitting up there going, come on, man, give me a fucking break. That's ridiculous and all that nonsense. The reason why he wanted to fight these people is because he knew that Uriah Faber was a name, Dominic Cruz was a name. And so the amount, the most amount of money that he could get is fighting these name guys, who, by the way, were way past their prime. It was a way for him to up, to, uh, increase his profile and get an easy win in the process. Yeah, come on, man. He wasn't buying it. I mean, he took around. He said, look, there's no risk. There's no money for the risk that I'm going to be taking to fight contenders like Peter Yan or Aljamain Sterling. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll fight guys like Dominic Cruz and Uriah Faber and continue with that nonsense. So, yeah, look, I mean, Henry, Henry Cejudo is awesome, but I'm sorry. Henry, Henry Cejudo is finding out what Demetrius Johnson found out, that in the UFC, small guys, with the exception maybe being Uriah Faber, don't get paid. Anything under 155, for the most part, you ain't getting paid. No matter how great you are. Dominic, Demetrius Johnson is one of the greatest fighters of all time. But he kept, you know, he kept outwardly, publicly criticizing folks of uh, the UFC because he never got paid. He was never headlining a UFC pay-per-view card. He was always headlining a Fox pay-per-view card or something like that. And because of that, he never got paid the way he thought he should have gotten paid, which was him being one of the greatest pound-for-pound fighters during the time. So Henry Cejudo was starting to find that out. Yeah, you beat the GOAT in terms of, I think, Demetrius Johnson is a top-five all-time great fighter and the best small man who's ever fought in mixed martial arts. You beat him by the... By, by the sl slimmest of margins. That didn't catapult you to all of a sudden now being an MMA superstar, being a UFC superstar, being a guy who could be cashing fat checks, guys who could be selling a bunch of pay-per-views, guys, a, a guy who could be making a boatload of money. That, that wasn't you. That didn't come up. And now he's pissed. Now he's upset. Now he's talking about, well, I need more money or I'm going to retire. You haven't shown that you can headline a pay-per-view card there, um, Henry, and then he tried to go ahead and he tried to come up with this persona being cornballish and all this kind of nonsense to try to get some attention. Did I just say cornballish, by the way? Is that a word, cornballish? Look that up. But I was just, he was trying to do all this other stuff to try to get some attention so he could try to get more money, and it didn't happen. So there you go. Flyweight, ban on weight. I mean, hell, Dana White's been talking about getting rid, get rid, getting rid of the uh, flyweight division for the longest of times. So that's great. You're a dominating guy, pound for pound, great. You can't sell pay-per-views. 
just can't do it. So, I mean, after the fight, Dana White's talking about when he, well, the subject was brought up that he'll give Cejudo about nine days to mull it over, talk about it, think about it, to walk it back on his decision about, you know, whether he's going to retire or not. But if he's really serious about retiring, then, you know, he'll, he's going to have to uh, relinquish the 135-pound uh, belt. And that's it. And then move on. And, you know, I, I, I can't blame him. But I, I, again, I don't. I think this was nothing more than a negotiation ploy. So I, you know, he, he wants to be talking about. He wants to go down as the greatest combat fighter of all time. You're close. You're close, most definitely. But I think if you retire now, I don't think Henry Cejudo has that moniker. I really don't. I think it's close. But you know, his claim to fame for the most part is barely beating. Uh, Demetrius Johnson after Demetrius knocked him out in the first or second round the first time they met that doesn't catapult you as being the greatest combat sports art, uh, athlete of all time now of course he won the Olympic gold and all that kind of stuff I mean that's a strong resume but I think to really solidify that that uh, that accolade he's looking at he's going to have to do more than just you know beat a couple of guys and just move on now and TJ Dillashaw he fought TJ and I thought maybe for him he thought maybe that was going to be the one that was going to vault him into superstardom. A quote-unquote, you know, super fight between the Bantamweight champion and the Flyweight champion. Well, I mean, the situation was, first, TJ went down to 125 to fight him. and got knocked out in 25 seconds, which was awesome. But there were plans for uh, Cejudo to come up to 135 to fight uh, TJ until DJ got busted for, uh, for roids or PEDs or something like that. So he was... He's been out now for a couple of years. So that was cast by the wayside. And the guy that he was fighting, while they were legit, incredible contenders, the public doesn't know about them. The sporting public doesn't know about them. The, you know, outside looking in MMA fan doesn't know anything about guys in the 125 and 135 pound division. So, great. So, unfortunately, he had to do something to try to see what he could do to raise his profile. And fighting Peter Yan and Ultimate Sterling is not doing it for him. So he had to fight someone with names, someone with a resume, a quote-unquote legend. So, you know, at this point, what is, what, is the, what is the rub that you can get by beating a past-his-prime 41-year-old Uriah Faber or someone like a Dominic Cruz? Nothing. What, what's, what's moving up to, what, what's trying to, uh, what's fighting Jose Aldo now going to do for you? I mean, that... I mean, the one who got the most shine from beating Jose Aldo was Max Holloway. I mean, what, what's beating Jose Aldo now going to do for Henry Cejudo? Not much. So, if he wants to retire, he wants to retire, go for it. But I just think, again, I think this is a situation in about a week or two, or even a little bit down the line, because, look, he'll relinquish the 135-pound belt. Okay, I think, really, what Cejudo is going to try to do or want to do is come back and basically be the Henry Armstrong of MMA. And what I mean by Henry Armstrong, everybody have a seat. Have a seat, please. Armando, have a seat. Take out your notebook and pen and paper. Professor Wallace is teaching here. Write down the name Henry Armstrong. Henry Armstrong was a fighter back in the day, one of the greatest fighters of all time, back in the 30s. And at the time, he had won like the three lower tier belts in terms of lightweight, bantamweight, whatever. Uh, but he was the greatest small man of a fighter of all time. And at one time, when there were only eight divisions in boxing, heavyweight, light heavyweight, middleweight, welterweight, lightweight, at the time, when there were eight divisions, Henry Armstrong was the champion in three of them. 
So that put him, because his, his folks were like, we got to do something, because Joe Lewis is taking all of the acclaim and all the fame and all of the this, that, and the other, all the attention. What can we do with this guy, Henry Armstrong, that can even eclipse the accolades of Joe Lewis? He's already won one championship, but we can get him to win two and then win three and hold the belt simultaneously three times. Then that would be something that even Joe Lewis cannot lay claim to. Well, I think Cejudo is looking to do that. I mean, there's never been a guy who's won a championship in the UFC in three different weight classes. St. Pierre, Cormier, BJ Penn, Conor McGregor. There's been, you know, Randy Couture. There's been guys who have won multiple championships in different weight classes or have won championships in different weight classes, but no one has won three. So if Henry Cejudo, I'm thinking to myself, if I can win a championship in flyweight, Bantamweight, and then uh, the 145 pound division, then hey, 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 and then I've got something here. Then I've really got something. I can win that, that featherweight championship belt so I can be a three-time champion, and I can get a bigger payday fighting guys like Max Holloway or Frankie Edgar or Brian Ortega. Ah, that might be the avenue I might have to go down if I want to go ahead and get the recognition and the payday that I deserve. So I'm guessing that maybe in the next three to six months, we'll be hearing from Henry Cejudo that this is the path that I want to be taking, that I'll relinquish the bantamweight belt. but or, or, or at the very least, the flyweight belt has already been re, uh, relinquished by Cejudo. So it's like, all right, you know what? I'll stick around, but I want to move up to 145 and challenge that belt. Let's have ourselves a super fight between Volkanovski, if he can continue to hold on to that belt. I want to fight the champion up there, whether that be Volkanovski, whether that be Holloway, whatever direction they're going to be going. That's the fight that I want. Because if I can win three championship belts, boom, then I've got something that nobody, nobody in the sport can ever uh, lay claim to. And then I can definitely, without question, say that I'm the greatest combat sports artist, uh, uh, fighter, and athlete of all time. So I think that's the direction that Henry Cejudo was, is aiming for when he said that I want to retire. I don't think he's retiring. I think Henry Cejudo, I think he'll be back. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Ending the um, discussions about the UFC card with Francis Ngannou, Kale over Jardinian Rosenstrike. Yikes! Bam, well, that vicious. Well, the inside leg kick is there for Piggy Boy. Oh! Oh! And so, strike is out. Oh! And got him. Out bad. Out cold. Holy smokes. So, Francis and got him with his fourth consecutive vicious first round Holy knockout. Cow. Daniel Cormier's tone said it all, didn't he? Man. So, that's Ngannou's fourth fight. All wins with uh, by first round TKO or knockout. His last four fights, get this man, his last four fights have lasted a combined total of two minutes and 42 seconds. And this time he won in 20 seconds, which was tied for the 10th fastest knockout in UFC heavyweight history. Man, 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 man. And uh, I don't know, man. I, what can you take away from that, man? What Should Ngannou wait for the winner of Stipe and Cormier? Or should he fight for the title again? That's the next question coming out of this. If I'm Nugano, learn from the mistake Tony Ferguson made. Wait, wait. 
You saw the mistake that Ferguson made by not waiting for Khabib, right? Wait. Wait for the winner of Miocic and Cormier. Whenever that happens. Now we're talking about Miocic. You're talking about, well, I don't know if August is I'm going to be able to fight because of the situation as far as with the uh, uh, ability to train and, you know, my obligations as a first responder in Ohio and the gyms are being closed due to the stay-at-home order in Ohio. So I don't know exactly when I'm going to be able to train and I don't know when I'll be able because of the eye injury. It's like all this other stuff, man. I don't care. Francis, wait. Don't go anywhere. Who in the heavyweight division can you fight anyway? I mean, unless you're hard up for some money, who else in the heavyweight division can you fight that's going to improve your chances of getting a shot at the title? Nobody. The only thing that can happen by you fighting is what happened to Tony Ferguson. You losing by whatever means and not getting that opportunity. Don't do it. Don't do it. Wait. Wait for the opportunity. Because after all, you could be fighting Daniel Cormier. Because there could be a situation where Dana White says, you know what, fuck this bullshit, man. Look, I need to get the heavyweight division started again. Here, here's another thing. Here's another situation. The Odyssey, nonsense, uh, not a good policy. Here, here's something else. Man, we don't know exactly. This was awesome. UFC is going to be throwing something on as far as a card on tomorrow and next weekend. But, I mean, as far as pay-per-views are concerned, who's going to be fighting, where they're going to be fighting, and all that kind of stuff, this, we're still up in the air about this. I mean, we've got multiple, multiple champions and fights. We don't know when they're going to be fighting next. We don't know when John Jones is going to be fighting next. We don't know when this Kamara Usman, Jorge Masvidal fight is going to happen. We don't know when Volkanovski is going to be able to defend his featherweight title. We don't know exactly what's going to be happening with the heavyweight division. And we don't, we, we don't know exactly how it's going to be taking place. Are we going to have all of these fights in, in Florida or maybe Georgia or some other places that have that are going to be laxing on the on the stay-at-home procedures? Are we going to go back to the island that the UFC bought and have their fights there? Who knows what's going on? And how are we going to be getting some of these foreign fighters or these fighters from other countries uh, over to the United States and fights? How, how is that going to work, depending upon what happens with this virus and depending upon where we go from there with testing and all these other things? I don't know. Who don't know? Who, who knows? We don't know. So it could be a situation where, you know, I don't know. I don't know, but it'll be interesting. Avon Francis Nagano, stay at home, wait, wait it out. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, to ending the uh, UFC MMA segment with this, man. GSP was inducted. George St. Pierre, my man, was inducted into the Hall of Fame. He's my favorite all-time MMA fighter. He's one of the main reasons why I became an MMA fan like I've been for the last 12 years. And it all started with one phrase i'm very glad you won that fight matt but uh i'm not impressed by your performance and i look forward to, to fight you in the near future that was awesome that was awesome i mean just to give you the background i at the beginning i was never a ufc fan i i didn't know i didn't even know the difference between ufc and mma i thought that was i thought those were just two different fighting companies or something like that. I thought MMA and UFC were the same thing. I had no interest, zero, none at all. I thought it was ridiculous. I was a boxing fan through and through. Never really got into mixed, uh, mixed martial arts. No way. I remember working here in Vegas at a radio station, whose I won't name, and I remember I was uh, producing I was producing a, a baseball game or something like that. I forgot what it was. And my man Wolf, who worked on the FM side, he brought in Frank, um, he brought in... Uh, 
he brought in a fighter, right? And at the time, he was the uh, heavyweight champion of the world, right? You know, man, this, that, and the other. He goes, Wendell, man, this is, you know, this is this fighter, this, that, and the other. He was like, hey, man, how you doing? This, that, and the other. And I was like, yeah, how you doing? I had no, who cares? I had no, no idea who he was. I didn't want to know who he was. Had no idea whatsoever, you know? So it was a situation where I had no, I thought it was garbage. I thought it was bare knuckle brawling. I thought it was low class. I thought it was low tier. Just didn't pay any attention to it whatsoever. No big deal in terms of that. So one day, I'm channel surfing. It was the, um, it was during the summer. And I was bored out of my mind. I must have been watching a baseball game because I was bored out of my mind. And I was just flipping through and it was commercial, 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 commercial. And I said, you know what, man? I'm so fucking sick and tired of dealing with these channels, with these commercials. The first channel I land upon where they actually have some programming. I don't give a fuck what it is. That's going to be my spot where I'm going to watch for a little bit. Commercial, commercial, commercial. Bloop. And it turned on to the UFC, their countdown shows, one of their early countdown shows. And they were talking about George St. Pierre. And at the time, I was like, what is this? Oh, yeah, this is just bullshit MMA UFC shit. All right. Well, at least until the, the um, commercials are over for the baseball game, I'll just I'll just watch this shit for about a minute or two, and then I'll turn back to the baseball game because I have no interest in this nonsense. But I'm sick and tired of just seeing commercials on every channel, so I'll just stay here and watch it a little bit. So I was watching, and they were talking about GSP and this, that, and the other, and then I saw that. But quite frankly, I'm, uh, Matt, I am not impressed. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Who is this guy? That's pretty good. This, that, and the other. And right there, I was hooked. Right there, it's just like, huh. Oh, this is interesting. When they went into his background, I was like, oh. Oh, this is interesting. They started talking about, you know, when he first started fighting in Montreal. And they said, oh, okay. All right. And slowly but surely, you know, I'll spend two minutes watching this before I go back to the baseball game. And then two minutes turned into five minutes. And then five minutes turned into ten minutes. And then they went to a commercial. I was like, oh, man, that's really interesting. So, okay, whatever. So I went back to the baseball game, and I was watching the game, and my mind was like, I wonder, I'm curious about this GSP guy. Huh, I'm interesting here. Let me, let me flip back over to Spike to see what's going on with this. Flip it back over. Resume the show. Ten minutes turned into 15, 20, and that's how I got hooked. Slowly but surely, that's how I got hooked. And being hooked in terms of watching the GSP deal, and with Matt Hughes, I was like, "Yeah, I wonder how that fight ever turned out between him and the, him and that that white guy, that Matt Hughes guy, the guy who was talking about." I'm not that impressed. I wonder, I wonder how that I wonder how that uh, turned out. So the curiosity is what got me, and that was started. And then all of a sudden, I started watching Pride fights, and I started watching guys like Shogun and Rampage Jackson and Fedor and. Kevin Randleman and, and Alistair Overeem when he was a middleweight or light light heavyweight before he got it all before he got all roided up. I mean, before he went on um, uh, strength training and all that type of stuff. And I started watching guys like you know Fedor and the Noguera brothers and Dan Henderson and and all those guys. And it was like once I turned over and started watching Pride, that's what really catapulted me. That's where I was kind of like, okay, now I'm hooked. Now I'm now I'm good. Now I'm good. So it was almost a situation where it was, you know, not just GSP was the one that hooked me. I mean, that was the guy for me in terms of, yeah, now you got me interested. But what even raised it up to the levels 
that I am right now in terms of my love for MMA. It was guys like Shogun Hua, watching Shogun and Pride, watching Rampage and Pride, watching Vanderlei Silva and Pride, watching Fedor and Pride, watching Krokop and Pride, watching all of those great fights. That's the ones, those are the ones who even elevated, elevated me even more. So I watched the Rampage Chuck Liddell fight, and all of these were taped, but I was so far behind on knowing anything about the UFC or about MMA that I didn't know. I didn't care. I watched these fights. I didn't know who won or lost because I had no interest. I had no knowledge whatsoever of these fighters going on in Japan. So when they showed these old fights, I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't sit there and was like, oh yeah, well, I already know who won this, that, and the other. So <clears throat> watching Fedor and Krokop and watching Nogueira and, and Fedor and watching Dan Henderson and these guys, it was just like, I was watching it for the first time. Watching Shogun and Rampage and this, that, and the other. I was, I was hooked, man. I was hooked. So when the UFC, when Japan and the Pride organization fell apart, and those guys came over to the UFC, I mean, Shogun was my man. Rampage, who had beaten Chuck Liddell over in Pride. Then he came back over to the United States with the UFC, and then he beat Chuck Liddell. When everybody was talking about Chuck Liddell was, was supposed to be the greatest fighter who ever lived, and this, that, and the other. And then Anderson Silva, and when he debuted, and he beat the shit out of Rich Franklin, not once, but twice. I mean, those are the type of things, BJ Penn and those guys, those are the type of things where I was kind of like, okay, you got me, you got me. I am now hooked to um, to the UFC. It all dates back to uh, George St. Pierre, who is, you know, one of the greatest fighters in the sport, as I mentioned before. I don't rank first, second, third, fourth, fifth, but when you're talking about who deserves to be at the table in terms of the greatest ever, along with Hoist Gracie and... Anderson Silva, John Jones, D.C., Demetrius Johnson, B.J. Penn, Jose Aldo, Fedor Emelianco, Randy Couture, Chuck Liddell, Matt Hughes, George St. Pierre, you're right there. And you're right there, right, right near the head of the table. So that's my deal with George St. Pierre. Congratulations for that band making it to the UFC Hall of Fame. <laughs> Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Let me end with a topic, you know what, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of podcasts ago, whatever, I called out Tom Brady, and I was like, man, you know what, I wish Tom Brady could do a little bit more in terms of his visibility to help out some some things going on in our community, I don't want him at the front line, I, I don't want him, you know, you know, having this trying to have the same influence in terms of helping our community. But I wish that Tom Brady would lend his voice in terms of what's going on in the black community, whether it be the social injustice, whether it be police brutality, all the things that we go through on an everyday basis. If Tom Brady could just say, you know what, these things are legit. These things are actually happening. These things are for real. And the people who are protesting, I understand where they're coming from. If he could do just those things, 
And I think that he would help move the discussion and help move the um, help move the needle in a positive direction more than he would ever know. And I'm not talking about him going to black churches. I'm not talking about him going to the NAACP. I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm talking about him going back to his community, going back to his golf courses, going back to his country clubs, going back to his circle of friends, going back to his you know, folks that he knows that are, that are big money and be talking about those type of things to say, yeah, you know what's going on in the black community with all the injustices that are happening? Hey, you know what? Those are for real. And we should kind of give respect for those who are actually fighting the fight that they're doing and actually, again, you know, be cognizant of those things and see what we can do just in our everyday to uh, make sure that we're not using our white privilege in a way that is not helpful in terms of helping out communities and helping out this world as a whole. I was down on Tom Brady saying that I wish that he would lend his voice a little bit more. Well, you know what? I'm going to give props to Tom Brady. And I think what he did was awesome a few days ago, calling uh, um, him uh, Brady along with about 20 New England Patriots players. They signed a letter last week requesting the FBI launch an immediate investigation into the death of Ahmad Aubrey. If you don't remember, if you've been living under a rock, just because of the color of your skin, you just don't give a fuck. Aubrey was a 23-year-old black man who was shot to death in a Georgia suburb on February 23rd while jogging, jogging while black. So LeBron James, Stephen Curry posted a posted on, uh, on social media, on their personal social media pages about Aubrey's death and the thing was, if you're not following the case, with the fact that this happened, he got shot again February 23rd. Just now, months later, these two murderers who killed him, who murdered him, second-degree murder at the very least, it took them this long for the Georgia, um, for the folks in Georgia down there in the criminal justice system to finally arrest these guys? The police department, whatever, it took them this long to finally arrest these guys. And the only reason why that they did that was because of the video. Really? That's, that's the only reason why? Yes, that's the only reason why. So there's just injustices on so many levels concerning this. So, again, Brady was one who signed a petition or signed a letter, you know, speaking on that. You know, so speaking about the... Um, FBI launching in an investigation into that. And I give the man credit. I give the man huge credit. And former NFL wide receiver Antoine Bol Anquan Bolden, who the co-founder of the Players Coalition, was also thankful that Tom did this. I think it's very significant. Um, especially, you know, having Tom be a guy who hasn't who hasn't been involved in politics at all. Um, he's kind of stayed away from it. But it just goes to show that people are tired of, of this happening. Um, we've seen it over and over again and, you know, far too long, um, we've allowed it to, to go on and, and, and not speak out about it. So, you know, to have someone like Tom Brady, you know, sign a letter, it, it was very significant. This was a small but very significant step, an important first step for Tom Brady. Again, I'm not asking Tom Brady to kneel. I'm not asking Tom Brady to call out anybody. I'm not asking them. I'm not asking Tom Brady to renounce his whiteness. I'm not asking Tom Brady to do any of those things. I'm, asking, I'm not asking for Tom Brady to be leading any marchers or any protests when black folks are concerned. I'm not asking him to do that. That's our job. That's black folks' job. Just like for women, for women shouting and talking about women's rights, and they're still getting the short end of the stick, 
Um, I don't expect men to be sitting up there talking about, okay, let me take the reins and let me take the leadership on women's issues. No, we don't know those issues like women have. We haven't been discriminated against like women have. We have not been polarized or stereotyped like women have. So women know much, much more about what's going down and women are much, much more educated and women would have much better ideas and much better, much better plans on how to fight this than men would when concerning women's rights. For us men, the only thing that we need to do for them is to be there for them in terms of their acknowledgement, of our acknowledgement that these things need to be taken, uh, uh, need to be taken place. The fact that we are behind them 500%, not 100% or 200%, 1 million percent, that we recognize that what we have done as far as men being concerned when it comes to the discrimination of women is, has been wrong. We accept that. We acknowledge that. The uh, arguments that the women have put forth in terms of their treatment, in terms of the way they have been treated like second-class citizens for decades and centuries, yes, men, we need to accept that. We need to embrace that and see what we can do to help them move forward by our own actions and by the way that we treat women in the workplace and, then, and outside of the workplace and our stereotypes and our thoughts and our feelings about them. What we need to change gradually is not going to happen overnight. So that's what men can do. I don't want to see men all of a sudden now with the Me Too movement, you know, doing the same thing that women are doing in a leadership role. That's the same thing with black folks in the community. I don't want white folks going to church and talking about y'all need to do this or we need to do that and this, that, and the other. I don't want that to happen. I, want, I don't want a white man or a white woman or a Hispanic man or a Hispanic woman or an Asian man or an Islamic man being the leader or being the head of what black folks need to do to get ahead and be better. Black folks should be doing that. Black men and women should be doing that. Nobody and nobody else. But what we'll need from those different communities, what we'll need from the Jewish communities, what we need from the gay community, what we need from the Hispanic community, what we need from the Asian community, what we need from all the different communities is the acknowledgement that yes, these things are going on and me, I as a human being will try to be better and be more cognizant of what's going on within your community. The slights, the racism, the bigotry, the second class citizenship that still takes place today in the year 2020. That's what I need from white folks. And I think with Tom Brady, that's the only thing that we need. So if Tom Brady, if a question is asked about, say, for instance, Colin Kaepernick, I don't expect Tom Brady to be sitting up there going, yeah, I'm going to kneel just like Kaepernick, or, you know, I'm going to denounce those and this, that, and the other. Tom Brady needs to say, hey, you know what? I understand what Kaepernick is going through. I understand why Kaepernick is doing this. I feel that what Kaepernick is doing should be done in terms of him bringing attention to these things because there is a social injustice within our community, within the black community. So what Colin Kaepernick is doing, I wholeheartedly agree with. Now, I ain't going to do it, but I am sure I am going to be there to defend Colin Kaepernick to do what he needs to do. And for any other player, for that matter, on my team or on any other team who wants to do that, I wholeheartedly agree with what they're doing and I stand behind what they're doing. That doesn't mean I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But I am not going to denigrate or I'm not going to judge in a negative, harsh way on why they're doing it. Because what they're doing it for is a good cause. And I understand the anger and the frustration of why they're doing it. And for them to do that, the intelligent people that I know, uh, for, for the, the person who's doing that, I know their intelligence. I know they care. I know what they're doing. And I respect that. 
And I'm going to stand behind that person in terms of him doing what he needs to be doing because it's true. Because what he's told me that in the black community, these things are happening. So the only thing that I can do as a human being, as one human being, is to treat him the way that I would want to be treated and to treat those in the community the way that I want to be treated and to judge those the way that I would like to be judged. As long as Tom Brady and the other white athletes and just white folks in general, and not just white folks, but also for other folks in other communities, as long as they have that attitude, we're good. That's all you need to do. Brady, you can go back to focusing on football and being the best quarterback that you can be. That's cool. Again, we don't need you spending a, a lot of time on the front lines. That's, that, we, we don't need you there. But again, a small but an important step. I mean, basically, he can. what he did was what Pee Wee Reese did with Jackie Robinson. You know, when Pee Wee Reese went over him and put his hand on Jackie Robinson's shoulder right in front of everybody when they were playing, when Robinson was being heckled and insulted and all these other things, and Pee Wee Reese kind of came over and that symbolic gesture about, hey, man, this is my brother, this is my teammate, this is the guy, this, that, and the other, and it kind of diffused a lot of the situation, kind of made it better moving forward. In a way, that's what Tom Brady did. When he went ahead and he signed that, it was his way of putting his hand on what us black folks were going through in terms of, hey, man, yeah, I, I feel it. I feel it in terms of what you're going through. And that's cool. I'm glad, basically glad that he did that. I want to thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I'm done. It's been over. Look, it's not even three hours. I'm getting better. I'm improving. I'm getting better. I want to thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Uh, continue with the subscribes, continue with the nice thoughts, continue with the thoughts, continue with your thoughtful thoughts, good, bad, indifference, or whatever. I'm on iTunes, I'm on Spotify, I'm on Stitcher, I'm on a lot of things. This podcast is growing, and it's growing, and it's growing, and then after that, it's growing, and with the help of you and others, it's going to keep growing, and I appreciate that. And the more that it grows, the better that it's going to be. Once I learn how to start interviewing people in terms of using the technology to start interviewing people, woo, man, then I can go ahead and enter another dimension of what we can do to make this podcast better because I've got some guests lined up that I want to get to, but unfortunately I can't because I'm still trying to figure out how to record interviews over the damn phone. So, um, yeah, I'm going to get to that. So, once again, I'm going to thank those who are listening, and in return, I'm going to do what I can do to give you the best product available to listen and to be entertained by. Wendell's World in Sports. Wendell Wallace. Music.
Spark.